Welcome to Skywave Audio Theater. I'm your host, Norman Gilliland. It was a clever idea, a title company producing a radio series based on the history of land titles in Southern California, a place with a long, colorful history of land titles and claims and losses. So, that's the way it was with Romance of the Ranchos. During its year on the air, it covered the stories of some of the most famous parcels of land in the West. Among the conflicts between cattle ranchers and Mexicans and Americans was the strife between cattle ranchers and sheep ranchers. And this is the story of the Rancho San Vicente and Santa Monica. Romance of the Ranchos from November 19, 1941. The Romance of the Ranchos. Santa Monica, 1840. Rancheros quarrel over pasture land. Santa Monica, 1896. Harbor fight carried to United States Senate. Santa Monica, 1941. Santa Monica, resort paradise of the Southland. The Title Insurance and Trust Company of Los Angeles presents The Romance of the Ranchos, recreating for you the vividly colorful yesterdays in the history of Southern California. Each week, our wandering vaquero, Frank Graham, reveals another fascinating story from the days of the dawn. Land is a wonderful possession in many ways. It is tangible and indestructible. Fire can't burn land. Thieves can't carry it away. It can be used for centuries, yet never be used up. Yes, land is a fine thing to own when you really own it. The simple way to know that you really own land, to have evidence of ownership that is readily accepted by buyers, banks, or loan companies, is through title insurance. For example, a deed to land may be forged, but your policy of title insurance protects you against such deficiency. That is why title insurance makes land readily marketable or instantly accepted security for loans. That is why, in providing title insurance service promptly and at low cost, the Title Insurance and Trust Company of Los Angeles renders a real and worthwhile service to the community. And here to tell us the story is our wandering vaquero, Frank Graham. Buenas noches, señoras y señores. Our story for tonight is concerned with the beautiful section of Southern California, from princely Bel Air to the blue Pacific at Santa Monica, land which was once the ranchos San Vicente y Santa Monica and the Boca de Santa Monica, a great estate of the old Spanish dones, a land filled with the romance of the ranchos. Our story takes us back to the coming of the first white men ever to travel the Southland. In 1769, Captain Gaspar de Portola and his company of leather jackets marched north from San Diego to explore the possibilities of colonizing the wilderness of Alta California. 
Camping at a spring at the mouth of the Sepulveda Canyon, near the present site of Sepulveda and Sunset Boulevards, the captain sent scouts to the west to explore the coastline for a passage north. Toward evening, they returned to camp. I have been forward to the sea. It is about two leagues away. And what about the passage? There is none. The cliffs rise straight off from the sea. The sharp rocks offer no foothold for our pack train. Ah, that is bad. We shall have to find some other way, some path through these mountains. It looks like it. Perhaps that gap to the north is a path. Perhaps we should explore that tomorrow, huh? Maybe so. The mountains of Santa Monica may offer us the way we seek. Eh? The mountains of Santa Monica? See, si, for so we have named this section. Santa Monica. But why that name? You have but to look at the sparkling spring over there, the bright drops of water, and you will see in them the tears of the saint, Santa Monica, weeping for her wayward son, Augustine. Oh, I see. And what could be more fitting for the sad brooding mountain shrouded in mist? See, we have named them well. This is the land of Santa Monica. The mists of time have joined with the mists of the mountains to obscure the facts. Only this legend remains to explain the manner in which the region of Santa Monica received its name. Many years were to pass before Santa Monica was to know the white man's civilization. They were years in which the Indians who had greeted Portola were the only inhabitants of the region. Then, in 1828, news came to the Pueblo de Los Angeles, to the home of Don Francisco Sepulveda. Ramona, who is that at the door? I go to see now, Francisco, in momento. Buenos dias, senora. Oh, Don Jose. Welcome to our home. SOS Casa. Gracias. Is Don Francisco at home? Si, si. Coming. Ramona, who is it? It is the alcalde. Don Jose Antonio Carrillo. He has come to see you. Oh, Don Jose. Come in. I'm honored by your visit. Gracias. And how are you, mi amigo? Oh, as well as can be expected for an old soldier. I should be much better when I get my rancho. <laughs> You're mighty anxious to get that rancho. Uh, why should I not be? I own 150 head of cattle. I am an old soldier of the country. I worked the most painful period, wandering amidst nomadic tribes, suffering untold privations and in constant danger of my life. You see me, amigo, I you, know. You ask why I'm anxious to get a little place of my own to settle down, live comfortably for my remaining years. Ah, me, amigo, do not be so angry. Uh. <laughs> I know you deserve the land of the Santa Monicas, but I could not resist the opportunity to tease you. Huh? For you can afford to be teased a little now. Well, what do you mean? I mean that the news you awaited has come. What? I bring it to you today. You mean? See, I mean the governor has decided, and he has sent me word to give you formal possession of the Rancho San Vicente right away. <laughs> Beside the springs where today stands the University High School of Santa Monica, Don Francisco Sepulveda built an adobe house. There he brought his wife, Ramona, and her family, and his cattle roamed the vast acreage of San Vicente. For ten years, their life there was a happy one, but a crisis was developing. For, as often happened in those days, the governor had been careless in defining the boundaries of his grants of land. And one day, in 1839, Don Francisco came home with bad news. Carido, what is it? What is the trouble? Oh, I, I do not know exactly what is wrong, my little dove, but 
You know our neighbors to the north? The Alvarados? She. They have left their houses. They have abandoned the land in the canyon of Santa Monica. So? But that is as it should be. For that is our land. That is your state. They have claimed it. And now they have moved away only to give the land to two others. Two others? See, You see the Royales and Francisco Marquez. They're living there now. Reyes is building a house on the high hills overlooking the ocean. But they cannot do that. Well, that is what I told them. But they claim it is theirs. They claim that the governor granted the land to the Alvarados. That they have taken it over. But the governor granted it to you. Well, I have always thought so. Francisco, what are we to do? I do not know. But this I do know. I must have that land. For it is the best pasture land near here. Without it, I have no place for my cattle. And if it means a fight, then I shall fight for it. To the end. And so began the lengthy dispute over the land north of Rancho San Vicente, which was later called the Boca de Santa Monica, stretching from Santa Monica Canyon to Topanga Canyon. For years, Don Francisco Sepulveda fought to save the land he thought to be his. He appealed to the authorities. The leading citizens of Los Angeles took sides in the dispute. Petitions were addressed to the governor and messages sent. But the years rolled on, and still there was no decision. Francisco, my husband, my loved one, you must stop this fighting. It is no use. It will go on forever, and, and we need you here at home. I cannot give up, Ramona. While there is the blood of the Sepulveda's in my veins, I must fight for the Santa Monica's. I'm going to Monterey to see the governor. I will meet him face to face and ask for justice. Oh, no, Francisco, no, do not leave us. Our little son, he cries for his father, as I do. I must go, Ramona, I must. I cannot rest until I have settled this matter. I must go. Sepulveda journeyed to far off Monterey to lay his case before Governor Pio Pico, but still without success. Finally, after many months of weary argument in the capital and in Los Angeles, Don Francisco came home, beaten and discouraged, back to the little adobe house at San Vicente, where he was met by the faithful Ramona. Ramona, we have lost. We can never own the Boca de Santa Monica. They've ruled that it rightfully belongs to Reyes and Marquez. Oh, does it matter, Francisco? No. Oh, we have waited so long for your return. I've sent messengers to the city, to Santa Barbara, to all the ranchos searching for you, Francisco. And our little son, Juan, he lies ill. Near death, he cries for you. What? My son dying? No, 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 that cannot be. Ramona, take me to him. Hurry, take me to my son. For days, Don Francisco and Ramona kept vigil together at the side of their dying son. The doctor had long since given up hope, but not Francisco. Forgotten was the pasture land of the Boca de Santa Monica. Forgotten the battle with Reyes and Marquez. Only one thing mattered. The tiny, silent form on the bed before him. Don Francisco prayed. Please, please spare him. Francisco, querido mio, you must rest. You have not slept for two whole days. How can I sleep, Ramona? When he was strong enough to cry out for me, I was not here. Now that I have come back, given up the useless, foolish fight, he does not even know I am beside him. Ramona, he needed me. You needed me, Carita, and I... I was not here. Ah, what a fool I was. No, Francisco, you must not blame yourself. 
You only did what you thought was right. But now I know how wrong I was. Ramona, what does it matter? Land or gold or earthly possessions, they mean nothing compared to the warmth of the heart that comes with love. The happy love of a good woman like you, Ramona. Or the open, unselfish love of a little child. Madre de Dios, if I could be spared my son, I should never want for anything again. Francisco, Francisco, look. The Padre has answered your prayers. Your little son, he reaches out his arm to you. Juan. Juan, my little son. And never again shall I leave you too. Not for all the world, my love. No. For all my world is here. Here with my beloved family. Beginning and ending of all things, know all persons who may see this will, that I, Francisco Sepulveda, a native of town of Sinaloa, Republic de Mexico, the son of Francisco Xavier Sepulveda, and of Maria Candelaria Arredondo, residents of the same place, Don Francisco Sepulveda lost his fight for the land of the Boca de Santa Monica, but he gained an understanding and the fullness of life. He died with more possessions than the richest man on earth, for he held the warm love and respect of those nearest to him. Perhaps that is why his will was such a simple one, reflecting a calm serenity toward life and death. I have about 500 head of meat cattle, about 50 head of sheep. Even in defeat, Don Francisco triumphed. For his name has lived down to this day. And the name of Santa Monica, even though he lost it, became forever associated with his rancho and with the city which was to grow up there. With his death in 1853, passed the first great era in its development. That the bulk of my estate I leave to my wife Ramona Serrano as my sole and general heiress. Without any person having any reason to trouble or molest her in any manner and leaving her without any obligation from me other than to deliver to my son Dolores 150 cows. Title insurance is different from almost all other types of insurance in one very important respect. On a policy of title insurance, the premium is paid only once. In other words, when you purchase land and obtain an owner's policy of title insurance from the Title Insurance and Trust Company of Los Angeles, the protection afforded by the policy continues during the entire period of your ownership without the payment of any further premiums. Another thing to remember is that in Southern California, the cost of title insurance is customarily borne by the seller. When you buy a piece of property, you should require, as part of the transaction, a policy of title insurance protecting you against defects in the title. When you sell property or borrow money on it, the purchaser or lender will require title insurance, which you will be expected to pay for. So you'll be glad to know that title insurance and trust companies' rates are very considerably lower than the average cost of similar protection 
elsewhere in the United States. Already, the land ruled over by the families of the Sepulvidas, the Reyes and the Marques, was becoming a resort. Californians from the Pueblo came to the broad, pleasant beach for a picnic under the sycamores and a swim in the surf. Overlooking it all was the broad, fertile mesa of the Rancho San Vicente y Santa Monica, vast and empty. This was what met the eye of Colonel R.S. Baker the day in 1872 that he visited the land for the first time. Immediately he saw the possibilities and looked up the heirs of Don Francisco Sepulveda. You're Jose Sepulveda, senor? Si, I am. And you? I'm Colonel Baker, Robert S. Baker. Oh, si, you're the gentleman who wants to buy the rancho. That's right. That is, I'm in the market if the price is not too high. Well, it is good land, senor. We cannot give it away. <laughs> Nobody's asking you to do that, Don Jose. I'm willing to come to the right terms. Yes, that is good. You want it right away? You bet. I've got a sheep ranch up in Tahoe County. That's my business, sheep. This looks like good country for them. Sheep? You wish to make San Vicente into a sheep ranch, senor? Sure, why not? San Vicente is a cattle ranch, senor. It has always been since my father first got it. <laughs> oh, come now, Don Jose. I realize how you cattlemen feel about us sheep men, but you wouldn't let a little thing like that stand between you and a good price, would you? Hmm. Senor, if it were just for myself, I would say to the devil with you and your sheep. But since others of my family have an interest, too, me madre, brothers and sisters, I will not. They are anxious to sell the land so that my father's estate may be divided, so... Good. We may as well discuss the price, then. Very well. But we will not take any cheap price. We have discussed the matter. We feel that the value of the land has reached its peak. Therefore, we shall ask a high price. Well, you have about 30,000 acres. How about $55,000? I... What was that? $55,000? Say that again, senor. Why, sure. $55,000. That's a fair price, isn't it? Senor, do you mean that? Of course. Your hand, senor. There. It's settled, Then we wish you'll have the papers done up immediately, eh? Well, the sooner the better. See, si, before you... Yeah, I mean, see, si, of course. Tomorrow, perhaps. All right, tomorrow, then. See, si. Madre de Dios. 55,000 pesos. <laughs> The great Rancho San Vicente y Santa Monica came into the hands of Colonel Baker, and shortly afterward, he united it with part of the land of the Boca de Santa Monica, as Don Francisco Sepulveda had unsuccessfully tried to do for so many years. From the Reyes and Marquez families, he added the acreage, and soon he was the master of a vast and thriving sheep ranch. But the life of the ranchero was not all work. Colonel Baker had time for the social life of the nearby city of Los Angeles. It was there... That... Yeah, what a superb party, Doña Arcadia. I'm enjoying it very much. I'm glad, Senor Baker. I'm always happy to have you here. You should try to make it more often. You really miss me? But of course. Doña Arcadia, I have something I want to ask you. See? Uh, aren't you tired of dancing? Perhaps. Is that what you wanted to ask me? <laughs> no, of course not. Uh, can't we go outside on the balcony? See, of course, Senor. Come this way. Here we are, outside. Yes. Uh, 
It's a beautiful night, isn't it? See, lovely. But then most nights in California are nice, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. You, you, you said there was something you wanted to ask me. See, uh, oh, I, I don't know whether I should or not, Perhaps but... Perhaps I can't decide that. You may. But you don't know what I'm going to ask. Don't I? Senor, don't underestimate a woman's intuition. You know, then? You have known all along? See, Senor Baker, I have. And here I've been afraid, acting like a schoolboy. You must have thought me a fool. Oh, but no, Senor Baker, of course not. But I know why you were afraid. Yes, it's your late husband, Senor Stearns. I didn't know how you felt. He is gone, Senor. He was a fine man, and, and I loved him, but he is gone. He would not have wanted me to be alone. Of that, I am sure. Well, that, that relieves me a great deal, Doña Arcadia. And now, uh, aren't you going to ask me? But you already know. Indeed. But every woman has a right to this moment, Robert. It's just a little thing, but such a tender memory. Will you be my wife? Not that, querido mío. I can ask no more than to be your wife. Beautiful Arcadia Bandini de Stearns became the wife of Colonel Baker and continued her long reign as the social leader of the growing city. Then, in 1875, Colonel Baker's domain was touched by a new era. Senator John P. Jones of Nevada appeared on the scene and bought a three-quarter interest in Rancho San Vicente y Santa Monica. Together, the two owners mapped elaborate plans. Uh, Senator, do you think it can be done? Of course it can be done. Everything is all set, the plans are laid, and we're ready to start building. Why not, Colonel? For this country's only started to grow. We can ride the crest of the wave. Yes. Yes, we can even make the wave. And we can put this town of ours on the map. Yes, but what about San Pedro? Southern Pacific's already built a railroad down there. They're using that as the harbor for Los Angeles. We'll put them out of business in no time. We've got just as good a harbor right here. And with a little money, why, we can make it a better one. But they've got the railroad. We'll build our own railroad. I've got the plans all laid out. Here it is, the name and everything. The Los Angeles and Independence Railroad. Straight from the mines up in Eno County down to Los Angeles, then out to here and onto our wharf. From there, our ships will sail to every country in the world. But the Southern Pacific will connect with the East. And so will we. We'll extend our road on east to make connections. Why, Colonel, this is a big thing we've gotten a hold of. We've started a new town, Santa Monica. In a few days, we're selling the first lots. And in a few years, we'll be running the port of Los Angeles. Gentlemen, the auction is about to begin. Yes, sir, you're about to get your first chance to buy a lot in paradise. Just look at it. Against the backdrop of the Pacific Ocean, draped with the western sky of scarlet and gold. And just imagine this beautiful emerald bay filled with white-winged ships. Just draw in a breath of that frostless, bracing, warm, yet unlanguid air, odored with the breath of flowers. The title to this land, ladies and gentlemen, is guaranteed by the owners. And the title to the ocean, the sunset, and the air by the creator himself. All right, who'll give me a bet? 
Who'll make the first The flowery oratory of auctioneer Tom Fitch brought in the first bid of $300 from Harris Newmark. Others went like hotcakes. Within nine months, the new city of Santa Monica had a population of 1,000 people with 160 houses. But the ambitious plans were never to be realized. The railroad was stopped at Los Angeles. The Long Wharf, built 1,800 feet into the Pacific, failed to bring much shipping to the new port. And San Pedro and Wilmington forged ahead. Forgotten for a time were the dreams of a great harbor, as the little town, instead, busily forged ahead as a site for homes. Then, in 1891, another railroad entered into competition with the Southern Pacific at San Pedro, and Carlos P. Huntington of the Southern Pacific determined on a bold policy. Yes, gentlemen, I do mean it. I'm going to take the Southern Pacific to Santa Monica. If the Terminal Railroad can bring their tracks right out onto Rattlesnake Island, we're going to be licked. That brings them right into the center of the harbor. We have to do something, and this is what I propose to do. I'm going to make Santa Monica the harbor of Los Angeles. Thus began an argument which eventually was carried to the United States Senate, where Senator Stephen M. White was an outstanding supporter of San Pedro. Mr. President, members of the Senate, before you vote away $3 million of the taxpayers' money on the worthless harbor of Santa Monica and give the true harbor of San Pedro only 390000 I want to propose an amendment to this bill that a board of army engineers chosen for their neutrality and for their confirmed judgment on such matters shall be appointed to determine the desirability of each of these harbors and I propose that the money we appropriate here shall go to whichever harbor the majority of them decide shall be the best. I am confident that if you shall adopt this fair and unbiased manner of determining, the harbor of Los Angeles shall be at San Pedro. It is the verdict to this board of engineers by a vote of four to one that the harbor of San Pedro offers more advantages as a free port and that the money appropriated shall be used in its development. Santa Monica lost the fight, and Carlos P. Huntington took his Southern Pacific Railroad back to San Pedro. This beautiful city of Santa Monica, on the sprawling mesa, with its precipitous cliffs falling away to a golden beach and a foaming surf, was not to become a bustling harbor for the ships of the world. Instead, it has become one of the world's loveliest cities of homes, a world-famous pleasure resort, a healthful, pleasant place in which to live. Today, it is the home of almost 80,000 people in the residential communities of Santa Monica, Brentwood, Brentwood Park, Sawtell, Pacific Palisades, Westgate, and a part of the United States Soldiers' Home, and also furnishes the home site for the great Douglas Aircraft Plant. And so is written another chapter in the romance of the ranchos. A few moments ago in the course of our story, you heard a reference to titles in the speech of auctioneer Tom Fitch. The title to this land, said Mr. Fitch, is guaranteed by the owners, and the title to the ocean, the sunset, and the air by the creator himself. Even in those days, purchasers of land required something more than the guarantee of the owners. 
Deals were usually concluded only after some competent person had made a search of all available public records, and after the report, or abstract, of such search had been passed on by an attorney. But even then, the purchaser had no insurance to protect him against loss in the event that some document might have been accidentally overlooked. Today, such insurance is available from the Title Insurance and Trust Company of Los Angeles. And because of the completeness of its records and the efficiency of its hundreds of expert employees in making title examinations, both the search of the records and the insurance of the accuracy of the search cost you less than the partial protection did in the early days. Now, Frank, what's on the calendar for next week? Our story for next week deals with the first discovery of gold in California. Yes, and it did take place in Southern California, on the Rancho San Francisco near Newhall. Tune in next week and hear all about it. Until then, this is your wandering vaquero, Frank Graham, saying, Hasta la vista, señoras y señores. The Romance of the Ranchos, a presentation of the Title Insurance and Trust Company of Los Angeles, featuring Frank Graham as the wandering vaquero, is dramatized by John Dunkel and produced by Ted Bliss, with special music arranged by Irwin Yo, Bob Lamont speaking. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The story of some of the most famous pieces of land in Southern California, that was Romance of the Ranchos, with the story of the Rancho San Vicente and Santa Monica from November 19, 1941. The development of the vast ranches of yore and the asphalt grids of 1941 is a big part of the story, not to mention the contrast between California in 1941 and in the 21st century. The Halls of Ivy are next here on Skywave Audio Theater. One of the radio comedy couples that did not come through vaudeville was Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman as they build themselves. Ronald Coleman had a long stage and film career underway, and Benita was the star of the London stage when they became neighbors of Jack Benny in Hollywood, and from their occasional appearances on his show, the Colemans developed a series of their own. It was a short, but it was a very successful series. In fact, it won a prestigious Ohio State Award. And here they are in the Halls of Ivy in a broadcast from November 15, 1950. The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Good evening, this is Ronald Coleman. And Benita Coleman. Inviting you to join us again on the campus of Ivy College. Welcome again to Ivy. Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA. 
Every college president to be successful must have some talent for improvisation. And all good improvising being compounded of memory, inventiveness, and facility, the possession of these qualities makes Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, Ivy's president, a gifted extemporizer. Just now, as his decorative wife, Victoria, enters the room, he's applying his knack for improvisation to the piano. Vicky, I didn't see you come in. Possibly I had my eyes closed. You wouldn't, wouldn't have seen me if you'd had them wide open, darling. I came in behind you and just sat down. I would have known it. Because with your entrance, the room always lights up a little. Oh. <laughs> what were you playing? Oh, I haven't the slightest idea, my sweet. My hands were on the keys, but my mind was not. I suppose I play for the same reason that some men whittle or tie trout flies or... Or doodle on blotters. <laughs> <laughs> and you not being here to look at, I was just giving my eyes a rest. From what, Toddy? From this book. Here. Hmm. Studies in graphology. Oh, handwriting. Yeah, a new hobby? No, I was checking various types of handwriting for a specific purpose. Uh, you note the bookmark? Well, quite a bookmark. A check for $2,500. You must have joined the Bookie of the Month Club. <laughs> What horse was it? <laughs> it's a dark horse. A horse of another color or a horse on me, depending on the viewpoint. Mm. And you notice that the check is typed out to mm. the Ivy Glee Club. The only handwriting is the signature. Mm. Abraham Smith. Who's he? Ah, that's what I'm trying to discover. But why does the Glee Club want to know who Mr. Smith is? Why don't they just cash the check with a happy little cry and say, Thank you, Mr. Smith, and go buy some mandolin picks. Well, that's, that's the problem. We want to thank the generous Mr. Smith, but we don't know who he is. Well, ask the Ivy First National Bank. They have the account. Well, the Ivy First National Bank states courteously but unequivocally that they cannot reveal such information. They intimated that Mr. Smith is a fictitious name used for charitable purposes. It was suggested... In bankerish terms, of course, that I let sleeping dogs lie, let well enough alone, do not stir up the mare's nest, refrain from looking gift horses in the mouth, and other assorted cliches to the effect that I should mind my own business. But not to be rude, dear, why don't you? <laughs> well, officially, I'm going to. But unofficially, my curiosity is so aroused. Somebody at the door, Tolly, and I hope it's Ellery Queen or Charlie Chan or something. Uh, yes, I, I could use a little detective assistance. With, oh, well, Professor Warren, oh. come. Hello, Doc. Victoria. Hello. I was just passing by, so I thought I wouldn't. <laughs> Am I inopportune? I should say not. In fact, you can have a key to the front door any time you want it. Yes. Now, sit down, Professor, and let's settle a few world problems. Thanks, I will. Sit down, that is. But I'm afraid world problems will have to wait until... Ouch! What's the matter? What? Is there a spring loose in that chair? Look, seem to have sat on a book. I try to get all mine bound in limp leather. <laughs> Hey, studies in graphology. Yes. Who's going in for handwriting analysis? William is doing some detective work. Uh -huh. I just stand around smoking my pipe and being elementary like Dr. Watson. <laughs> I'm finding it quite fascinating, Joseph. When you consider that an individual's handwriting is actually a projection of his personality, the, the result of... Hmm, I've just thought of something. Well, why stare at me? It's perfectly permissible... Even admirable for a college president to think of something now and then. <laughs> What's on your mind, son? 
Are you Abraham Smith? Who's Abraham Smith? The brother they didn't have room for on the cough drops? No. <laughs> no, and either you are an excellent actor or you're not the man I'm looking for. But it seems quite a reasonable idea. You're the only member of the faculty I know who's financially able and would be willing to donate $2,500 to a good cause under an assumed name. Well, thanks. But on the rare occasions when I perform any good works, I sign them Joe Warren. My credit in heaven is so overextended, and I got such a late start mending my moral fences that I can't afford to be modest. <laughs> What's this all about? Well, somebody's using that name. I've made a check out to the Ivy Glee Club, and William wants to find out who it is so he can thank him. Well, to give you a little background, the Glee Club was short of funds. They couldn't buy costumes or new musical arrangements for their annual tour. And then a mysterious Abraham Smith mounts his ballpoint pen and rides to the rescue with his check. Hmm. Let's see it. Hmm. Do you recognize the handwriting, Professor? Nope. But as one detective to another... You can rule out anybody in either the engineering, accounting, or medical departments. Not precise enough for an engineer or an accountant. And the first thing a medical student learns is to write so only an experienced pharmacist can read it. I know. <laughs> but I, I, I think obscurity in writing is demanded by the medical profession. Uh, you, you see, medical men quite properly for the safety of the public are conservative. Which is probably why with the... The foundations of medicine, going back to the Phoenicians and the Egyptians, doctors have retained the use of hieroglyphics in writing prescriptions. It lends itself admirably to, uh, to the abbreviation. An abbreviation which extends even to the gowns supplied to hospital patients. Oh, here we go again. These dreadful garments, originally designed, I'm sure, for victims of the Spanish Inquisition on their way to the stake, they do have, I suppose, some utilitarian value to the practitioners of surgery. However, when you consider that the fabric of which a hospital gown is composed, a blend of cactus fibers and low-grade sandpaper, <laughs> diabolically compounded for the abrasion of both soul and epidermis, would... would <coughs> how did I get here in the hospital? I mean, did I have a conversational accident? Yes, you did. You were struck by a runaway digression. You got any other guesses about Abraham Smith? Well, this officer is someone familiar with college affairs. <laughs> and you, I thought, as a wealthy novelist. Oh, please, please. Just because I sold myself down the literary river and typed out 450 pages of fraudulent history and busty intrigue, don't go throwing my ill-gotten gains at me. Oh. Say, so wait a minute. Let me see that check again. Do you have a hunch, Professor? Well, I could be wrong, but I think I've seen that typewriting somewhere. See that crooked W and that lopsided O? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Where did you see it? Whose is it? I haven't the slightest idea. Oh. <laughs> but it was quite recently. Look. Can you spare this check for a few hours? Until tomorrow morning. I have to return it to the manager of the Glee Club, Tommy Thornhill. He seemed to think I might abscond to Guatemala with it. Well, I'll give it to Tommy if you like. Uh, he has an early morning class with me. But I'll check this, and if I hit anything, I'll telephone.
finding graphology very interesting, Vicky? You see, see this example. You see that the high stem and the slim loop indicates a high regard for personal dignity. Mm-hmm. Of course, if I were to comb the student body and the faculty for someone with a high sense of dignity, the search would broaden out to some 300 people. Now, on the other hand, take, take this sample here. Yes, yes. Now, where did I put this? You see, the small B with, with the initial hook indicating an animated conversation list. Uh, do, do we know any... Uh, Vicky? Yes, dear. See, I was listening, I was listening. A sense of dignity at 300 people. I heard... Uh, yes, yes, darling. Um, combined with a strong Darvis in a no small permalip from the Cranivers. Or am I being mustafried in Estabrow? Mm, that's right. Couldn't be anything else. <laughs> uh, Victoria? Yes, dear? Come home, darling. All is forgiven. <laughs> Oh, I know, 300 small bees. <laughs> what? Oh, I'm sorry, Tardy. I, I was looking for something. Have you seen my hairpins? Hairpins? Well, well no, I, I don't when think I... When I came in here, I had a little white cardboard box full of hairpins. I don't remember where I put them. Well, I think we can eliminate Professor Warren. His scalp is so bereft of foliage that hairpins would be tonsorially obtrusive. <laughs> oh, yes. It was exasperating. I had the box in my hand when you were playing the piano. And then when Professor Warren came in, I set the box down somewhere. Uh-oh. Oh, well, if that's Professor Warren, tell him if he returns my hairpins, we'll ask no embarrassing questions. Yes, if, he, if he can tell me who Abraham Smith is, I'll buy him a permanent wage. Yes. <laughs> Hall's residence? Oh, yes, Professor, yes. You did? Who? Good heavens, you're joking. Ha, 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 Really? Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep you out of it. But, uh, Professor, I owe you a permanent wave. Uh, which do you prefer, poodle or hostel? <laughs> yes, I, I know. I'll explain it later. Goodbye. <laughs> how obvious the answer was. What? What? Um, and how readily I ignored the rules of graphology. How? Well, after all, the high sense of dignity, the rapid conversation, of course. But, Toddy, please. Uh, uh, what, dear? Don't do this to me. Uh, you do what, darling? What? Who was it? Mr. Wellman. Mr. Terence Wellman. No. Yes. Why, it's hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> I take back a lot of things I've said about Mr. Wellman. Not all of them, just some. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But as Coleridge said... Think not of his errors now. Remember his greatness, his munificence. <laughs> Think on all the lovely features of his character. You know, let's not go mad, you know. <laughs> anyway, Sherlock, the case is closed. The mystery is solved. And you can put, a, put on your smoking jacket and play your violin. Well, I'm sorry, Watson, but cases have been few when I gave my violin to the landlady in lieu of rent. <laughs> However, we still have the piano. <laughs> My goodness, what's happened? My hairpin. What? Well, I remember now. I put them on the edge of the piano. They must have fallen in. <laughs> well, beauty's loss is music's gain. I, I rather like the honky-tonk effect. America 
is bringing you this presentation of The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. As we return to the Halls of Ivy, we find Dr. and Mrs. Hall discussing Mr. Wellman, who turned out to be the mysterious Abraham Smith who sent a generous check to the Ivy Glee Club. Tommy Thornhill, the Glee Club student manager, is also present. Dr. Hall is saying... Well, Professor Warren has the check, Tommy. He'll give it to you tomorrow. Yes, it was Professor Warren who discovered Mr. Smith's real name. How did he do it, Mrs. Hall? And who was it? Obviously someone who's closely connected with the college, but I'm afraid we can't divulge either the method or the individual, Tommy. He evidently desires anonymity, and we must respect it. Okay. But we'd sure like to give him a few choruses of happy days. He got the glee club off a bad spot. Can't you even give me a hint, Dr. Hall? If I had just his last name and his phone number, I could figure the rest of it out myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. For, For one thing, a person who goes to such lengths to conceal his generous instincts would quite properly resent our prying into his identity, however much we would like to thank him. You see, Tommy, Dr. Hall places great emphasis on good manners. He says that our social machinery is oiled by courtesy, and that please and thank you are the three little squirts that keep it running. (laughs) I didn't say that at all. I merely said I know, I know. I added the three little squirts bit myself. Just to punch up your script, you know? (laughs) Anyway, Tommy, when he can't thank someone for something they've done, it hurts him. It hurts me too, Mrs. Hall. And if Dr. Hall can think up some way we can show our appreciation without spilling any beans, we yes, certainly... Yes, thank you. I will. Well, sounds like you've got visitors, sir. I'd better run along. Oh, it won't be necessary, Tommy. I oh, think good evening, the... Dr. Hall, Mrs. Hall. Oh, good evening, Mr. Wellman. I phoned it. Oh, uh, I, I didn't know you had... Mr. Wellman, this is Tommy Thornhill, student manager of the Glee Club. Mr. Wellman, Tommy. Evening, sir. Evening, Thornhill. Is this a business meeting? I mean, uh, am I interrupting? That is, I was merely... Not I was... at all, not at all, Mr. Wellman. Tommy was here to see if he could find some way of thanking a mysterious benefactor of the Glee Club. Uh, Mr. Wellman, some shy angel yanked us out of the red with 2500 bucks, and we can't find out who he is to pin a gardenia on him. I told Thornhill that the donor's privacy must be respected, Mr. Wellman. Uh, of course, of course. Can't go snooping into affairs like that. Man wants to help somebody without any brass flags. I mean, uh, bands waving. Uh, uh, well, what I mean is, uh, uh, you say you manage the Glee Club, uh, Glee Club uh, Thorndike? <laughs> yes, I'm the student manager, Mr. Wellman, and uh, my name is Thornhill, not Thorndike. Oh. Though it was spelled M-U-D until this check came along. <laughs> now I can get the show on the road, thanks to Mr. Smith. Mr. Uh, who? Uh, Smith, Mr. Wellman, the mysterious friend who sent the check. If I knew who it was, I'd give him a kiss. Uh, uh, please, uh, Mr. Wellman, I don't think it calls for any such emotional display. Uh, I mean, uh, this Smith fellow, whoever he is, must be very bad. By, by the way, I'm an old Glee Club man myself. Don't they? Yes, I know that, Mr. Wellman. I've seen your picture. Uh, you were a tenor, straw hat and a cane, uh, class of, uh, was it 1913? Uh, 1914. Matter of fact, uh, I was student manager myself. Had a rough time, too. No money, empty treasury. People seemed to think we traveled on freight cars and ate grass. <laughs> <laughs> promises, promises, promises. I wrote a song about it, in fact. Well, that's very interesting, Mr. Wellman. Then you probably know how much the club appreciates the generous Mr. Smith. Well, I'm glad to have... Uh, I mean, glad to have had the experience myself managing the club with no money, so... Uh, uh, yeah, yes, I suppose they might think well of this Smith. Don't know who he is, huh? I don't, but Dr. Hall says that... Dr. Hall are... says it must be someone who was close to the college. Oh, he wouldn't have known about the Glee Club's difficulties. Uh, very logical. Very, uh, good thinking, but I wouldn't be nosy about it. Uh, probably some sentimental old grad, more money than sense. Uh, by the way, Mr. Wellman, 
What was the song you wrote about getting all promises and no money? Uh, <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> uh, not, not a very good song, really. Uh, uh, corny, I believe, is the word. Uh, Mrs. Hall would know, yeah? Uh, called it Fair Weather Friends. Uh, with a full chorus and a good accompaniment there. It didn't sound too bad, but as a solo, well... <laughs> with some good music available, it was, it, it, it was like... Uh, like uh... Carrying coals to Porter. <laughs> well put, Mrs. Hoyer. Well, well put. <laughs> say, say, wait a minute. Uh, fair weather friends. Uh, the one that goes like this. Fair weather friends. Fair weather friends. Imagine anyone remembering it. It's a old town. Where have you gone? Yeah, but it's well, obvious, Tommy, why you're the manager of the Leaf Club instead of a singing manager. <laughs> <laughs> now it takes a crow to find the corn for the rest of the birds, doesn't it, Tommy? <laughs> <laughs> How did you know about this song? Well, when it looked like we were short of money for new arrangements, Mrs. Hall, we started going through the trunks for some oldies. Somebody came up with this fair weather friends, and it was great. Real barbershop stuff. Really? You, you liked it, Fondike? Yeah. Oh, my goodness, I never would have... Well, that's my song. Well, I'd like to hear the club sing it again sometime. Yeah. Sure, they'll be happy to do it for you, Mr. Wellman, if only by way of thanks. Uh, maybe I'm a little... Thanks for what, Dr. Hall? Uh, but, but, but for writing in 1914, what looks like a nice hot revival in 1952, Mr. Weldon. Yes, yes. It's as good as a, as a donation. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, hmm. Uh, uh, that. Uh, well, uh, well uh, glad you could use it, Sam. Or we'll use it all right, sir. Well, uh, thanks, Dr. Hall, Mrs. Hall. Nice to meet you, Mr. Wellman. Hi, yes. everybody. Hi, Tommy. Tommy. Fine boy, that fawn ball. <laughs> Think of them. Digging up my song after all these. <laughs> fair weather friends. Fair weather. <laughs> I wonder if I could remember the whole thing. Uh, uh, may I use your piano? Uh, certainly, Mr. Wellman, but you won't like it. It's, uh, it's in a lot of tune. Well, so am I. No, 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 let me see. Uh, Is that me, or is it the piano? <laughs> it's full of hairpins, Mr. Wellman. Hairpins? Well, of all of us, I knew you had your little eccentricities, Dr. Hall, but filling your piano with hairpins is hardly a very... <laughs> so, uh, well, I didn't come here to discuss music. It's, it's about the First National Bank of Ivy. I'm a VP, as you know. It seems that you called them trying to find out who sent that check to the Glee Club. Well, it seemed too bad that such a generous gesture should go unthanked, Mr. Wellman. So, so I... you took it upon yourself to snoop and pry. If this mysterious uh, contributor, who uh, whatever his name is, Ezekiel Smith, Abraham Smith, uh, Mr. Uh, oh. <laughs> How do you do, Mr. Smith? Are you, you know, all the time? No, no, no. <laughs> no not all the time. No, and then don't. Don't blame your bank, Mr. Wellman. They gave no information. There's someone who will be very discreet. Recognize your typewriting, Mr. Wellman. But who? I, I mean, how? I, I thought I'd taken every precaution. I mean, well, even so, who had the effrontery to... I mean, look, well, when a man tries to remain anonymous in a thing like this, why does... Well, well, it, well if his privacy isn't... Can't, they can't be respected. Mr. Wellman. What is it, Dr. Hall? <laughs> any, any prying or snooping which was done was my fault and mine alone. I simply couldn't bear the thought of such a helpful act not being acknowledged. 
Rest assured that your identity is known to only three people, Mrs. Hall, myself, and one other. None of us will divulge it without your permission. Now, with this assurance, permit me, on behalf of the college and the Glee Club, to express our very great thanks. Well, uh, sure, nobody will... All I mean, if uh, this doesn't get all over the campus and will... Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> now, how about tomorrow, Toddy? Uh, tomorrow? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Mr. Wellman... Now what? Um, by, by way of a small celebration over having been financially rescued, the Glee Club is having a small luncheon tomorrow. At whose expense? Well, <laughs> it's a Dutch treat, Mr. Wellman, and you are the little Dutch boy who stuck his checkbook into the dike. <laughs> Uh, gentlemen, uh, if I may have a minute's quiet, please. I did. Uh... Hey, fellas, if you don't mind, I'd like to see a few. Quiet, you lemonheads! That's um, a, a technique we haven't used at the Board of Governors, Mr. Wellman. Well, as chairman, I've made a note of it. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, the Ivy Glee Club has with it this noon two very good friends President Hall, a baritone with a steady job who is always welcome at any fish fry of ours. And Mr. Clarence Wellman, Chairman of the Board of Governors, to whom we owe a special debt of gratitude. Yeah. Dr. Hall, you, you, you said you wouldn't tell. I didn't. When it looked like we'd never get our pitch pipes off the campus, we went through the files looking for old numbers that didn't need new arrangements. And it was a song written years ago by Mr. Wellman that snapped up the repertoire. On your feet, gentlemen. And show him our top number for this year. As it was the top number, I'm sure, in 1914. Fairweather Friends. My song. Take it, boys. Thank you. 
He got a little serenade from the Ivy Glee Club and Ronald and Benita Coleman as Professor William Todd Hunter Hall and Vicki Hall, the Halls of Ivy, in that broadcast from November 15, 1950. A series about as different from Fibra McGee and Molly as its producer could make it. And speaking of contrasts, we're going to hear a story about a man who had to play two very different roles based on the real-life experiences of a double agent, a man who was a communist for the FBI. Next, here on Skywave Audio Theater. The role of double agent Matt Savetic during the depths of the Cold War has been debated ever since 1950 when his story was serialized in the Saturday Evening Post. In 1951, Ziv Productions launched its radio series with Dana Andrews as Savetic. Despite the name, the FBI refused to be involved with the series. Not that it uh, mattered during the Red Scare. It ran on 600 radio stations. Politics aside, without a lot of gunshots, it did make for good drama. Plenty of suspense and danger. This episode is called Red Rover, Red Rover. I was a communist for the FBI from November 19, 1952. I was a communist for the FBI. Dana Andrews in an exciting tale of danger and espionage. I was a communist for the FBI. From the actual records and authentic experiences of Matt Savetic, come many of the incidents in this unusual story. Here is our star, Dana Andrews, as Matt Savetic who for nine fantastic years lived as a communist for the FBI. It was weird, and it was terrifying. I'd begin to get so much into the choking spirit of my character that I'd talk and act like a real communist, even to myself. That's when I'd get scared. But if I didn't play it to the hilt, the comrades would suspect when I'd be scared again. Come to think of it, for nine long years as a communist for the FBI, I was never anything but scared. In a moment, listen to Dana Andrews as Max Sabetic, Undercover Man. Now, here is Dana Andrews as Max Sabetic, Undercover Man. This story from the confidential file is marked Red Rover, Red Rover. I walk slowly down Dawson Street, pretending I'm not looking for anybody. Comrade Revson, who was supposed to rendezvous with me here, had better look sharp, because the sidewalks are crowded. He's supposed to pick me up so we can get down to the next shady item on the red agenda. All at once I have company, and it isn't Comrade Revson. All right, Mrs. Savetic, we'll take a taxi from here. Who are you? Just keep walking and keep talking and head for the curb. I've got another date, so goodbye. Do as I tell you and everything will be jolly. I asked you who you were. I'm not Comrade Revson, that's a start. You know somebody by that name? Both of us do. Stop right here. Now listen, girl. Taxi? I don't even know you. But we both know Revson, don't we? Come on. Where to? 1010 Atherton Plaza, driver. Do tell. Atherton Plaza. I'd have worn my clean shirt, but I never dreamed. Oh, quiet. 
Tell me, pretty maiden, could this be fun? Very definitely not. Mm-hmm. Now, what will Revson say when he doesn't meet me? We'll handle him. Who's we? You'll see. I see. Now, be quiet. A taxi is a public place. We enter a district that makes Park Avenue look like a slum clearance candidate and pull up at a facade that would look natural with a mink canopy. We take the elevator to the fifth floor, and I'm being seriously worried. I don't know if this smart little brunette is for me or against me. Is she comrade or FBI? And how will I explain things to Revson? It sounds like a radio cliffhanger. Be sure to listen tomorrow, and I sincerely hope I'll be with you then. We stop at a white-paneled door. The girl lets herself in with her own key. In the lush living room, a fattish but solid man is sitting on the sofa. He smiles a nothing smile and waves a plump hand at a chair. Sit down. Yeah, but first, my name is Matt Svedek. What's yours? Mr. Svedek, this is Comrade Yusatine. Yusatine? Yusatine? The name is not familiar to you, I'm sure. If it were, you might not be here. But I am here, and I'd like to know why. We may have a little job for you. Thanks a lot, but I have a job. Oh? I already told him not to be concerned about Revson. He'll undertake to explain to him, Comrade Svedek. You will? You will say nothing to him. Do you understand? No. No, I don't understand. Ah, you will. We've been watching your work, Comrade Svedek. We like it. We have decided to entrust you with your most important mission so far. Again, who is we? Some extremely important documents are being held for us in Canada. You have to secure them as we shall instruct you. Shasta will help you. Shasta? I'm Shasta. Oh. Comrade Svedek. Go ahead. You will proceed to Toronto, Canada, where you will be given an envelope. You will return and deliver the envelope to me, with Shasta's assistance. Oh, I'll receive this envelope from whom? How? Just be in Toronto day after tomorrow. But what do I do when I get there? Where do I go? Just be there. It'll not be as simple as it sounds. Look, comrade, I'm a direct guy. Yes. Would this be a cozy little business to get rid of me? Do you know of any reason why we should want to get rid of you, Comrade Svetik? Of course not. Why worry, then? Okay. When do I leave? Tonight. I'll wind up my modest little affairs. Chester. Comrade Yusatine. Brief the comrade. Come with me. The other room will do. And here are your tickets, your plane transportation, train ticket, bus. All three, just to go to Toronto? In fact, you'll finish the trip by taxi. Anything to shake possible pursuit. Would be after me. Oh, don't be silly. The FBI, for one. What do you mean, for one? Who else would it be? Must you question everything? Live and learn. Not if you learn too much. Nicely put. I thought Comrade Revson was a strict disciplinarian. With us, you do exactly as you're told. With us? Does that mean you're something different from the party? Or something apart from it? Ask enough questions, Comrade Svetik, and you'll ask none. I'm sorry. You may have use for a gun. Here, take this automatic. Oh, that's nice. Scared? I was admiring the gun. All right, take it then. You know what to do. Be in Toronto day after tomorrow. Just be there is enough? Mm Mm-hmm. Seems hardly enough. Impressive, though. Speak to nobody between now and the time you leave. Nobody at all? Nobody. All right. When you get back in town, call this number. Ask for you? Won't hurt. Yes. 
Aren't you afraid this place might be wired? Not in the least. Oh? And don't waste time thinking about it. It'll get you nowhere. All right, you may go now. Have you had your lunch yet? You may go, Comrade Svetik. Now sail. Just bring back those documents. I'm on my own. And I'm worried and a little scared. This is something new in being a communist for the FBI. I go down the elevator thinking, those cold fish upstairs talk like communists and treat me like one of them, up to a point. But then there's something offbeat about them, something very wrong about them that I can't figure. But I don't know Yusatine or Shasta, the girl with a name like a daisy. And I do know Revson, and he's my official boss. And I'm going to report to him warnings or not. I step out into the street and hail a cab. As I get into the taxi, two men get into a long black sedan behind us. And friends, there's no mistake about it. They're following me. I don't shake the shadows until almost evening. I've got to shake them. I've got to tell Revson. And I've got to tip off the FBI. I finally get up to Revson's office. Is it important, Sedic? I think it may be very important. Then let us discuss it somewhere else. We can't discuss it somewhere else. This office may be wired. I tell you, we can't go anywhere else. I'm being followed. Followed? I've shaken them. But if we leave, they might pick me up again. Followed by whom? I don't know. That's one of the reasons I had to see you. They didn't want me to tell you. No? I figure you're my boss, not these strangers. Start talking. I couldn't meet you because some girl picked me up and brought me to a flossy guy named Yusatine. Yusatine. Mean anything to you? Go on. I'm supposed to go to Toronto tonight and pick up some envelope with important papers in it. If those shadows learn I reported back to you, I just may be in trouble. I took a chance. Any theories? I have heard of such such adventures from other comrades. This Yusatine and this Shasta may be counter-revolutionaries working against us. What should we do? Do? Do as they tell you. But if, as you suspect, a counter-revolution... Do as they tell you. And report everything to you? No. Yes. No, no. Just, just be careful. But shouldn't I report back to you? It's a chance to check on the enemies and traitors inside the party. If that is what they are. Well, what else would they be? All right, all right. Report to me. Good. But be careful. Do exactly as they tell you. Go. Go, sure. Go where? Do what? When I'm this much in the dark. For the first time in my long connection with the party, I've seen Revson disturbed and worried. Worried. He's scared. And I wonder why. He's tough and he doesn't scare easy. My own anxiety deepens. I make sure I'm not being followed. And I find a pay station and dial my FBI contact. Hello? Oh, Mr. Adams? Who's calling Mr. Adams, please? Mr. Gwinnett. Adams talking. Go ahead. Where can I see you right away? I'm taking off for Toronto in half an hour. Well, let's see. This is Friday. There's a bank on Webster and 12th. Keeps open Friday evenings, closes Saturday. I have a safe deposit box there. We can go to the vault, take the box to a private booth and talk. That sounds good. Make it fast, though. Ten minutes? Well, that's fast. Okay. Very interesting, Matt. If that's interesting, you ought to see this little Shasta Daisy. She gave you an automatic? Yeah, here it is, right in my pocket. No, no, no. Don't you touch it. 
Good enough for your fingerprints on it already. Here, let me fish it out of your pocket with a handkerchief. So? Can you do something about that? Well, I'll check whatever prints the gal left on this gun against our files in Washington. See what the game is. Counter-revolutionaries? I don't know yet. FBI? Maybe? I wouldn't know, Matt, would I? When will you know? An end of suspense. This cold sweat is ruining my clothes. Call me when you get back into town. Yeah. Lots of good luck, Matt. You think I'm going to need that much and that good? Call me, Matt. But it's easy. In fact, it's too easy to be true. I get to the United States-Canada line, and I don't have any trouble at all getting across because I don't go across. Before I start over, an old man bums me for a dime, thanks me kindly, and hands me a thick envelope, heavily sealed, and disappears. Not another word said. Easy, sure. But I know now that I've been followed and watched all the way and pointed out to the old man by my shadows. Why didn't my shadows pick up the envelope then? Why me? I don't know. But I'm scared now, scared solid. I go back home feeling foolish and unnecessary, and in some dark and terrible way, on the spot. And I was a communist for the FBI and the second act of our story. Hello? Shasta? Who? Shasta, this is Matt Svedek. I'm back. So soon? Yeah, I'll tell you all about it. Did you get it? I got it. Let's see, you uh, wanted to have lunch with me the other day. Well, it's too late now for that lunch. I had one. How about dinner? There's a noisy place in the 50s where we can talk. It's big, the food is good, and society fairly interesting. Pick me up in front of 1010 Atherton Plaza by 9. That's right. Just leave everything to me. You're certainly home ahead of schedule. Uh, let's talk about that where it's noisy, hmm? Smart man. Reliable fella. Bye-bye. Yeah, smart as the proverbial whip. Any St. Bernard dog could have done on that mission. Hello? Mr. Adams, please. Mr. Gwinnett calling. Oh, this is Adam Shope. I want to talk to you right away. Hey, back early, aren't you? Where can I see you? Our bench in the park at 9. No good. Got a date with a fair Shasta at 9. 8, then? 8 it is. Something I've got to tell you, too, friend. What is it? Is it anything you can tell me now and save me a lot of... Hello? Hello? Uh... All right, Matt, that's your story. And I'm stuck with it. Uh, now you. Now, Matt, I've got some pretty strong news for you. All right, come on, let's have it. Shasta and Yusuftine are not counter-revolutionaries. Then why did Revson act so scared? Well, they're on his side, all right, but they play a pretty lone hand. And a grim one at that. Grimmest game on earth, maybe. Well, how do I figure to be the one they volley back and forth? 
I'll tell it to you fast, Matt. Yeah, I do. You've been tapped by the MVD. What? Mm-hmm. You've been playing around with the Russian secret police. Shasta and Yusatin are MVD agents. What do they want with me? Well, they're either testing you, or they're thinking of recruiting you into the secret police. Oh, no. Not for me. No, no, it wouldn't do at all. Not for us. First of all, you could never bring yourself to do the things they'd expect of you. These are the boys who buried an Alpenstock in Leon Trotsky's brain, just for example. Definitely not my line of work. Oh, stop it, nothing. You wouldn't last. They'd get you, Matt. Now, the FBI doesn't ask that much from a man. I don't want any part of them. Now, that's the problem, Matt. They don't ask you to join, they tell you. Whether you like it or not, Matt, you've been drafted for the MVD. Well, what do you think I ought to do? You've got to finish the job they gave you. If you don't, you'll be in trouble. Oh, fine. If I come through for them, I'm promoted to the MVD. If I don't, I might be severely dead. Well, from now on, I'm having you watched constantly. Well, that way I'll have friendly witnesses to my murder. We'd better break it up now, Matt. You've disobeyed orders in seeing Revson and me. The MVD might uh, resent it. And who knows how better. Have a nice date with Shasta. <laughs> restaurant where I took Shasta was so crowded I almost had to make an appointment just to check my hat and top coat. But my beautiful date had a drag. And we got a table where if you could read lips, you could hear somebody near you, almost. I told you it'd be noisy here. The better for others not to hear us, my dear. Right. Now about the envelope. I have it in my inside pocket here. Don't show it to me now. Nobody notices anybody but himself in this bunch. We are being watched. Where? Don't look now, you idiot. What about the envelope? Keep it. I can't afford to have a phone on me. Can I afford it any better? You've got to get out of here before those FBI men know what you're up to. How do you know they're FBI? Let's have a gander. Don't turn it. That group at the table between us is getting up to dance. Use them for cover and get out of here. Now? Not yet. All right. Now. I do some fast, broken field walking through the packed restaurant. Just as I reach the door, I see the two men at the corner table jump up and come after me. FBI, nothing. They're my two MVD shadows. What made Shasta think they were FBI, or did she? I don't stop to ask questions. I jam on all canvas and sail past the check room. Do you have a hat and coat, sir? No, no, thanks. I run outside and jump into a taxi. We're pulling away when the two MVD goons come out of the restaurant. That black sedan slithers to the curb and they get in. And off we go again. Around midnight, I get a chance to pull an old gag out of the gag book. I duck into a big drugstore. They're almost ready to close up, but I order a sandwich at the lunch counter, watch my chance, and slip into a phone booth and sit on the floor. Pretty soon, the lights go out. It gets quiet. I stand up and look out. The store is closed and the coast is clear. Very pleased with myself, I go to a door to unlatch it. Then my instinct issues a fast warning. Hit the floor, Matt. A cop goes by, trying the doors. Then he continues on his rounds. I stand up again, start to unlatch the door again. Hold it, Matt. The burglar alarm. If I open the door, the alarm will go off. If I'm picked up with that envelope on me, I'm in trouble with the cops and with the MVD. What to do? Call the FBI. 
Oh, of course. I looked through my pockets for a coin. Not a cent. I gave all my change to the taxi driver. Now what? The cash registers. Try them. Oh, yeah. Pennies. Nothing but pennies. Who needs them? I must have a coin on me. I've got to have one. Yeah. One solitary coin in the change pocket of my jacket. Oh, boy. Lucky for me. The first time I ever put a coin in that pocket. What number are you calling, sir? Bridge 3232. Come on. You may have dialed the wrong number. Will you please try it again? Return my coin, then. Yes, sir. Hey, what the... Operator! Operator! Operator, you collected my coin! Operator! Operator? I was calling Bridge 3232 and got a wrong number or something, and you collected my coin. Please drop another coin, and we will mail you a refund. I can't drop another coin. That was the last one I had. It's got to be that. I will try to ring your number. Bridge 3232. Come on, be there. Answer. Come on. Yeah? Adams? Who is this? Gwinnett. Oh, you caught me just going out the door. What's up? Listen, I'm being followed by some MVD goons. I managed to get locked into a drugstore, but now I don't dare go out. Are the MVD still out there? No, but I can't let the cops find this envelope on me. Oh, that's right. And I've got to deliver it to Usertine tomorrow or else. Yeah. Uh, do this. Hide the envelope somewhere around that store where nobody else is likely to find it. And tell me where you're putting it to. You or I can get it tomorrow, see? In case I get picked up, right. <laughs> you boys think of everything. Now hold on while I find a place to put the envelope and... and... Hello? I'm here. Anything wrong? I haven't got the envelope. What? I must have slipped it into the inside breast pocket of my top coat instead of my jacket. Where is your top coat? I left it at the nightclub when the MVD got on my trail. Mm-hmm. Better go back and get it, boy. Yeah, I'd sure better. Funny thing, I open the front door, the alarm goes off and rings like mad. And nobody, absolutely nobody pays any attention. I run all the way back to the nightclub. It's jammed with the after-theater crowd. I head for the check room, breathing hard. Yes, sir? I've got a hat and top coat here. Your check, sir? Your check. Let's see. Well, I can't find any check on me. Did you give me a check? I always give a check, sir. It's a size 42, herringbone tweed, gray-green. Well, I can't give it to you without a coin check. Well, yeah, I'll help you find it. I'm sorry. That isn't permitted, sir. I'm not going to steal somebody's umbrella. Are you uh, sure you had a hat and coat? Yes, I'm sure. You ran out a couple hours ago saying you didn't. I've got a hat and coat here, I tell you. I'll have to see your check. I can't find a check on me. I'm sorry. Well, what does it look like? It's a little brass coin with a number on it. Oh, sister. I put it in a pay telephone. Oh, brother. That's a new one. Mr. Fogarty! Who are you calling? The house detective. Mr. Fogarty! Don't, don't do that. Mr. Fogarty! <laughs> I can't stay here and be arrested. I've got to get out. Panic. 
Planning to get away and escape, I dash into the street again and right into the arms of the powerful MVD men. They muscle me into the black sedan. I stop fighting. What's the use? I'm tired. It's all over. Why fight? Give up. Why struggle? It's all over. A figure of a comrade, you are, Svetik. I did my best. You did your best. Yes. Then where is the envelope? I told you. I'll go back to the nightclub when they close up. My coat will be the only one uncalled for. No. Why not? Svetik, you know what happens to those in our society who mishandle important responsibilities? I, I suppose so. In this case, that papers happen to be of no importance. What? They are of absolutely no value. It was a test, a trial to see whether you were worthy of an important promotion. Promotion? Hmm, then you failed. I will tell you now what will happen to you. What? You are unworthy of command, Svetik. Therefore, Svetik, you will return to the ranks. Go back to my cell with Revson? It is all you are fit for. Well, comrade, I'm always ready to serve the party in any capacity whatever. And if you... Enough, enough. Show him out, men. The MVD men turn me loose on the sidewalk. I'm in the clear and with a whole skin. Almost deliriously, I think... Svetik, if you ever wanted to be wrong, this was the time for it. I walked down the street, breathing in the cool night air, unraveling the knots in my stomach. I fell out of the frying pan, almost into the fire. It's almost like social security being back in the frying pan again. It could have been worse. I might be an MVD agent by now, and a dead man a year from now. But I don't fool myself. I'm still in big trouble. I'm a communist for the FBI. I walk alone. Dana Andrews will return in just a moment. places are fictitious to protect innocent persons. Many of these stories are based on incidents in the life of Matt Svetik, who worked undercover for the FBI. Next week, another fantastic adventure. Join us, won't you? Andrews eager to play an anti-communist, or was he just a famous actor playing a role? One of his biographers say that it was the latter. 
As for the real-life Matt Svedek, despite some of the valuable information he provided to the FBI, his increasingly erratic behavior, some of it including drink, began to erode his credibility with both the Bureau and the Communist Party of the USA. That was Red Rover, Red Rover. I was a communist for the FBI from November 19, 1952. Next, Screen Directors Playhouse, as promised last week, it returns with the ghost story and uh, the first of three, in fact, that we're going to be hearing in the balance of this week's offerings from Skywave Audio Theater. Last week, we heard John Garfield as a troubled boxer in Screen Director's Playhouse. That broadcast ended with a reference to the story that we're about to hear. The Uninvited was a 1944 Ray Milland, Ruth Hussey film based on a story by the Irish writer Dorothy McArdle. It's a story about a house with a history, a history that has a way of seeping into the present, sort of like the scent of mimosa. From November 18th, 1949, this is Screen Director's Playhouse with The Uninvited. From Hollywood, the Screen Director's Playhouse. Screen Director's Playhouse, star Ray Milland. Production, The Uninvited. Director, Lewis Allen. Hollywood screen directors present a tale for troubled midnights. The motion picture drama, The Uninvited, starring Ray Milland in his original role of Rick Fitzgerald. I woke up, five in the morning, my skin creeping, my scalp crawling. I listened. I heard the dim surge of the ocean at the foot of the Devonshire cliffs not far from my window. Only five o'clock. And then... I was sure now. I hadn't dreamed it appalling crying. Could it be my sister Pamela in the next bedroom? There was no electricity in this old house. I I lit a candle. I went to the door leading into the upstairs hallway. Rick! What? Oh, Oh, Pamela. You heard it too, then. What in heaven's name is it? I don't know. It comes from downstairs. It comes from everywhere and nowhere. I'm going down and search the place. It's no use, Rick. There's never anything there. You mean this has happened before? All the time you were still in London while I was getting the house ready for us to live in. But why didn't you call me or write me about it? It's our home now. It's all we've got to live in. It sounds so terribly heartbroken. But there, there must be some logical explanation. It'll stop soon now. It always dies away at dawn. No wonder we got the old place for such a low price. They tell me it stood empty for ten years before... Oh! oh. Shut up, Blue Open. It's the dawn breeze. I must have forgotten to latch up. Listen. I know. The sobbing is gone. Oh. Is 
all for tonight? Is that all? It's every night, Rick. And if I don't get some sleep, I'll die. Oh, no, no, don't do that. It'll be different tomorrow night. You'll see. Hello. Aren't you the gentleman who bought this house for my grandfather? Why, yes. Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. I'm Stella Meredith. It was my mother's house. Well, come in, Stella Meredith. Thank you. I haven't been in this house since I was three, and I've wanted to come so many times. Then why didn't you? Oh, my, my grandfather forbids it. He has some silly idea that I'm in danger. Nonsense. You shall see the house, Stella Meredith, and I shall be your guide. This is my old nursery. Like it? Oh, how pretty your sister has made it. That's very pretty perfume you're wearing. It's mimosa. Do you like it? Oh, very much. My mother always used mimosa. She died when I was three years old. Oh. May I see the studio now where my father painted? Only it's the studio where I play the piano now. You may even persuade me to play something for you. Don't stop playing, please. Very flattering, thank you. Father painted my mother's picture in this very room. You don't remember that. No, but mother would sit on this platform wearing her soft white dress. Sometimes, of course, he'd paint the other one. Other one? He had a model, you know, a Spanish girl. People seem to get awfully hush-hush when I try to ask about her, though. You played beautifully. It's a serenade to Stella by Starlight. You mean this Stella? Me? And this candlelight. Oh, it's the most exciting thing that has ever happened to me. Is it? Y yes. What's the matter? All at once, a, a cold wind. Yes, suddenly it is cold in this room. And your music's gone so terribly sad. Why? I don't know. It just came out that way. And the candles grew dim. There's a drought. Oh, Mother was so young and beautiful, and she died so cruelly. Mother! Stella! gathered my scattered senses and jumped up and ran after her. I passed Pamela, standing amazed at the foot of the stairs. Rick, what's the matter? What's happened? There's something evil in her glass But she was out the front door, her dark hair flying, running wildly in the darkness, heading for the cliffs. Stella! I shouted after her. Stella, come back! Shouted again, pleading with her. No, Stella, no! The cliffs, I thought. Stella, the cliffs! The cliffs and the boiling sea beneath. Stella! Whatever sinister force had driven her out of the house was now driving her to destruction on those killing rocks. The brink was only yards away, a few steps. I reached for her and my fingers caught in her belt and I pulled her back. 
back from the very edge of that awful precipice. Stella. What's the matter? Matter? You were going over the edge. Was I? Why did you do it, Stella? What drove you toward death? Death? Why, nothing. I, I didn't feel I was in any danger. Look below you. Oh, the sea. Yes. This is where my mother fell. Your mother fell here? By this dead tree. She, she... Are you all right? Help me. Stella. Will she be all right, Dr. Scott? She's resting nicely upstairs, Miss Pamela. Well, is Stella entirely safe up there alone? Why not? Well, in the light of what just happened. And you're the one who sneers when I say this house is haunted. Well, everybody in the village knows the house is peculiar. Well, can you tell us anything about it, Doctor? Do you know about Carmel? Carmel? The Spanish model Stella's father painted. Oh, yes. Stella's father was in love with Carmel. It was an open scandal. But didn't Mrs. Meredith know about it? Well, I suppose she just accepted the situation. Where's this Carmel now? She died in this very house a week after Mary Meredith fell to her death from the cliff out there. Oh, she did fall then. Ironically, she fell trying to save her rival from committing suicide. Or so they say. Rick, Dr. Scott, don't you notice a scent in the room? No. Yes, I do. Yes. It's heliotrope. No, it's mimosa. Stella's mother was fond of it. Stella tells me that Pam has come back. What, Rick? Upstairs. Stella's not alone anymore. I know it. Come on. Stella. Stella, are you all right? She's gone. I'm here. Stella, darling. At the window. Now, don't be frightened. I'm not frightened. Don't you know who it is in your house? It's my mother. Your mother? Did you see her? No. But when I woke up, I... I felt her in the room. Her scent, the mimosa, it was all around. I could feel her warm presence everywhere. And I felt something else. Something I've never known in my whole life. The knowledge that someone loved me very dearly. You'd better take her home, Rick. No. No, Mother is here. She wants me with her. Your mother is dead, Stella. I know. But your grandfather will miss you. He'll be furious if he finds you here. I know, but I love it here. I'll always come back. Another time, Stella. Another time. again. Her grandfather was right. There was danger in this house for Stella. In the studio, when we'd first felt its presence, I'd not smelled mimosa. But in that moment before dawn, with that awful sorrow in the house, I suddenly knew. I knew that there was a cold, cruel spirit which hated Stella, and a warm, scented spirit that loved her. There was not one ghost... You 
You are listening to the Screen Director's Playhouse presentation of The Uninvited, starring Ray Milland in his original role of Rick Fitzgerald. Pamela, I know this. Stella Meredith is in danger in this house. She mustn't come here anymore. But she loves it, Rick. How can we possibly keep her away? By holding a seance. A seance? Only this seance will be rigged. We've got to fix it so that the ghost of Mary Meredith appears to say, in effect, Stella, I'm your mother. Forget Windward House and I shall find peace and happiness. P.S. There is a tall, excruciatingly handsome man named Rick Fitzgerald who wants to marry it's you. It's wrong, and... Rick. I won't agree to deceiving Stella. We've got to break Stella this attachment to the dead. We'll rig the sails. That very night, we held the sails. We all sat around a table. Stella, Pam, Dr. Scott, and I. A single candle was burning. On the table, I chalked the alphabet in a big circle and the words, yes and no, opposite each other. An inverted wine glass stood in the center of the table. My stage was set. I think the room is dark enough to begin. The important thing is that we should all believe. Yes, yes, so I understand. Well, what now? Everybody puts a finger on the glass. Now, ask a question, Stella. Is there anybody here... Is anybody... The glass is moving. Yes. The glass is on, yes. Go on, Stella. Are you my mother? Yes. You don't want me to go away from Winwood House, do you, Mother? They want me to stay away. Do you? Rick, let go. You're keeping the glass from moving. I'm not. Let go, I say. You better let matters take their course, Mr. No. You see? She said no. She doesn't want me to stay away. Look, look, the glass is moving. I. G. U. A. God. I God. God me from what, Father? What? C. A. R. M. Carmel. That's enough. Who smashed the glass against the wall? You, Pamela? No one, Rick. No one was touching it. Stella. Stella. Stella's in a trance. Stella. Don't touch her. It may be dangerous. May I ask a question? No. It might help to try to reach her mind. Yes, try it. Whoever you are. Are you Mary Meredith, Stella's mother? This is awful. I won't ask her anything else. Is that Spanish, Scott? I, uh, I don't know. Ladrone, mi cariño. Stella. She's fainted. I'm afraid this has all been a dreadful mistake. Oh, it was wrong. 
But she'll never be cured until this house is cured. Until then, Stella must never come here again. I won't answer it. I'll answer it. I'll go. was Stella's grandfather in a cold, bitter fury over her presence there and her condition. An outrage, you hear? An outrage. I'm very sorry, sir. It won't happen again. I warrant you it won't. My granddaughter will never enter this house again if I have to lock her up somewhere. Come, Stella. Stella was gone, but my work had just begun. I had to avert a tragedy. I had to solve the mystery of Windward House, but, but where to start? I went to see Dr. Scott. Any luck, Fitzgerald? Find anyone with a clue to what really happened here 17 years ago? No. Everyone who was here with the Meredith then seems to be dead. A trained nurse, isn't Trained nurse? I've been looking through the old case book of my predecessor, Dr. Rudd. No? At the time of the tragedy, the Merediths employed a nurse for their child, a certain Miss Holloway. Holloway? Very, very much attached to Mary Meredith. Well, is she alive? How can we find her? She runs a place on Bodwin Moor called the Mary Meredith Retreat in honor of her long-dead mistress. Hospital? No, no, a mental institution. Strange woman, strange place. Bodwin Moor. I think I'd better have a serious talk with Miss Holliday. I shall be happy, Mr. Fitzgerald, to assist in any way I can concerning these manifestations at Windward House. Well, to begin with, Miss Holloway, I know about the Meredith, uh, Mary Meredith Carmel Triangle 17 years ago. Yes, it was the delight of the local gossips. What were Mary and Carmel like? Extraordinary women, both of them. But Mary Meredith, she was a goddess. Even her talk was lovely and sparkling. Oh, the night we sat before her fireplace, planning our lives. Yes. She met her humiliation and her fate magnificently. Uh, About Carmel. A Spanish gypsy. Beautiful and crafty and cruel. Why did Mrs. Meredith stand for the situation? She felt the decision to end it must come from her husband. Did it? Finally. To make it easier for Carmel, they took her to Paris found a position for her and left her there. Then they came back here with their infant daughter. For a while, they were almost happy together. Then? Carmel came back. She still wanted Mary's husband. Then one stormy night, Carmel had been told that she must leave, this time for good. Oh, there was a ghastly scene, and finally Carmel, in a rage for revenge, ran to the child's room and snatched her up and ran toward the cliff. Mary raced after her. In the struggle, Mary fell to the rocks below. The baby was unharmed. What happened to Carmel? She escaped in the storm. Next morning, she crawled back in the early stages of pneumonia. I had to nurse her. I see. And now, please... I must be alone. Please. Would 
you tell me about Miss Holloway is very interesting, Fitzgerald. A fanatical and dedicated woman, Doctor. Uh, Dr. Rudd, before me, disliked her intensely. Professionally? Personally? How? Listen to this entry from Dr. Rudd's casebook for December 10th, 1932. Called to Windward House, Meredith's model, Carmel Quesada, double pneumonia. That tell is what Miss Holloway told me. December 12th, Carmel Quesada, much worse. No attempt to warm her room. Found traces of snow in her bedroom. Snow? Spoke severely to Nurse Holloway. Absolutely criminal negligence. Well, isn't that a pretty serious charge, Doctor? When a man of Dr. Rudd's generation used it, it was very apt to mean murder. Miss Holloway murdered Carmel? She was very fond of Mary Meredith. Perhaps that's why Stella's grandfather sent her to Miss Holloway's for safekeeping this afternoon. You mean... You mean Stella's there now, in that genteel madhouse? Well, I venture she's safe with her mother's dearest friend. Who was also guilty of criminal negligence? Oh, no. Dr. Scott, I must hurry. Be good enough to call my sister Pamela at Windward House. Say I'll pick her up in 15 minutes and call Miss Holloway, will you? Tell her to expect us. I'm on my way. Miss Holloway, when I was here before, why didn't you tell me that Stella was here, too? The presence of our guests is confidential. Please take us to her at once. She's no longer here. I sent her away when Dr. Scott called to say you'd be here. But why? She was the happiest person in the world when I told her she might return to Windward House. Windward House? But her grandfather sent her here to keep her away from Windward House. She loves it so. You knew we'd be away and you sent her there? Mary will be there. Oh, you hate Stella. You sent her to her death. Mary is waiting for Stella. You're insane. Hurry, Pam. It may be too late even now. drove headlong through the rain, racing the train to Windward House. We arrived in the early hours of the morning. The house was dark. We were on time. Stella hadn't arrived yet. And then, from the inside of the house... It's Stella! The front door flew open and Stella ran out, screaming fearfully, running for the cliffs. Stella! Come back! Something she'd seen or heard or felt in that horribly sick house of ours was sending her screaming in the darkness toward the windy cliffs. I ran after her, but she was very young and lithe and driven by fear and drawn by demons, and I overtook her slowly, oh, so very slowly, as in a terrible nightmare. And at the very brink of the cliffs, I dove for her and flung her to the ground, the very brink of death, the very edge of darkness. Stella, you'll be fine. Dr. Scott, Rick, why would my own mother want to drive me to my death? Darling, whatever drove you from this house couldn't have been your mother. But it was. I I saw her. It was a kind of a mist that glowed softly in the dark, coming toward me, just as my father painted her. Why did you run away? I, I don't know. Something terrified me, drew me to the cliff. Um... Uh, could the company endure one more excerpt from the case book of Dr. Rudd? It's rather worthwhile. You've the air of a man with knowledge, Scott. <laughs> this entry is dated a little more than three years before the final tragedy on the cliff. Meredith consultation, my office. Mrs. Meredith afraid she is going to have a child. Assured her she was not. The strange, cold, loveless woman refusing motherhood. But... Meredith, poor man... Wanting a child so desperately. But there's Stella. Now, now, listen. 
An extraordinary household. Carmel, the Spanish girl, worships Meredith. Lovely, pitiful creature, all love and womanhood. Pitiful? What does it all mean? I, I don't understand. Stella, where were you born? In Paris. Where they took Carmel. They came back with their baby, or, or at any rate, someone's baby. Rick. The Meredith stayed in Paris for a baby to be born, yes. But I think to Carmel, not Mary. They took the baby as their own to avoid a scandal. That's why Carmel came back, to be near her baby, near Stella. Then it was Mary Meredith who hated Stella, her rival's child. Mary Meredith, who tried to throw the baby from the cliff and fell to her death. And that's what Carmel waited here to tell me all these years. That she was my mother, not Mary Meredith. I'm Carmel's daughter. Rick, the mimosa. She's here. Oh, mother, mother, never weep again, because now I know. Never cry again in this house where, where father loved you. Carmel, mother. She's happy. Mother's happy. She's at peace at last. Oh, Rick! Rick, look! That's the mist I saw. Mary Meredith. Dr. Scott. Pamela, get Stella out of here. I was alone. Alone with the thing that drifted and floated in menacing, gesturing filaments in the open French doors. A luminous mist becoming a face that undulated horribly. A face filled with hatred and malevolence. And I lifted the candelabrum with its flickering, guttering candles. Come on, you icy fraud. If it's Stella you want, you're too late, Mary Meredith. You've tried enough to destroy Carmel's child. So much for the legend of your saintliness. And you can go along with it. Here, darling. Oh, are you all right? All right. I am magnificent. It's so dark, darling. Never brighter. Mary Meredith. Gone forever. Oh, and I always thought she was my mother. What? Good saints preserve me from ghosties and ghoulies and long-legged beasties and a future mother-in-law like that. Raymond will return in just a moment. Next week, as always, another great star recreates one of her most memorable roles on Screen Director's Playhouse. Our story is The Spiral Staircase. And our star, Dorothy McGuire, with Screen Director Robert Siodmak. Now, here again is tonight's star, Ray Milland. Thank you. The film version of The Uninvited was distinguished by ghosts, gasps, moans, groans, and a very brilliant gent named Lewis Allen. Lou directed the picture, furnishing the assorted horrors out of his bag of tricks. 
Since then, we've done three other films together, and his amazing know-how still has me fascinated. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to meet him. My director, Lewis Allen. I hardly think I deserve those compliments. Why not? Well, The Uninvited was the first picture I ever directed. But, Lou, you'd been directing stage plays for years. But when I sat behind those cameras for the first time, I was as scared as the audiences who saw the picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you feel about cameras after all the pictures you've made since then? They still scare me. You know what? What? They scare me, too. <laughs> well, at least we weren't scared of the ghosts and The Uninvited. You know, Lou, you made everything so real for a while, I almost believed in them myself. But why, there's no such thing as ghosts. <laughs> Lou. Yes, Ray? What did you just say about ghosts? I'd rather not talk about it. Good night, Ray. Good night, Lou. Good night, everyone. And good night to you, Ray Moland and Lewis Allen. Remember next week, Dorothy McGuire and Robert Siodmak. The Uninvited was presented through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures, whose current release is the William Wyler production, The Heiress, starring Olivia de Havilland, Montgomery Clift, and Ralph Richardson. Ray Milland will soon be seen in the Paramount picture, Copper Canyon. Lewis Allen's current production for Paramount is Chicago Deadline. Included in tonight's cast were Alma Lawton as Stella, Norman Field, Mary Shipp, John Daner, Georgia Backus, June Foray, and Dan Riss. The Uninvited was adapted for radio by Milton Geiger, and original music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. Screen Director's Playhouse is produced by Howard Riley, with dramatic direction by Bill Karn. Portions of the program were transcribed. This is Jimmy Wallington speaking, inviting you to listen again at the same time next week when we present... Screen Director's Playhouse, star Dorothy McGuire, production Spiral Staircase... Director, Robert Siodmak. Sunday on Hollywood Calling, you may be called by motion picture stars Maureen O'Hara and Dan Daly to win a wonderful prize and crack the film of Fortune Jackpot. Make a note to stick close to your radio and your telephone Sunday for Hollywood Calling. It might be your lucky day. Listen to Hollywood Calling Sunday on NBC. Stay tuned for Bill Stern and the Sports Newsreel on NBC. Taking you to a house, a cliff, and a ghost or two, always a dangerous combination. That was The Uninvited, Screen Director's Playhouse from November 18, 1949. It's probably not a good idea to rig a seance in a place like that. As for the 1944 film that was its basis, it got mixed reviews, but one critic, James Agee, a prominent critic writing for The Nation, said The Uninvited makes a mediocre story and a lot of shabby cliches into an unusually good scare picture. As for the spiral staircase you heard mention of, that was another psychological horror film, a 1946 production. 
We're going to continue in this creepy vein with one of the great escape stories. It's Casting the Runes, next here on Skywave Audio Theater. Montague Rhodes James was an English author and a medievalist, and several of James's ghost stories are set in Suffolk, including O Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, a famous ghost story. There's also A Warning to the Curious, Rats, and A Vignette. Most famous among them probably, though, is Casting the Runes, a story that takes the form of a kind of a game of last tag, a fatal game for the loser. The most famous adaptation of the story may well be the one that Escape did. From November 19, 1947, this is Casting the Runes. Had a hard day at the office? Backache from bending over a hot stove all day? Want to get away from it all? We offer you escape. It is midnight and you are alone. Suddenly the room is plunged into darkness. You sit frozen with terror because something is there behind you. Something you feared would come. Something from which you must escape. Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to London and a world made strange and terrifying by the workings of an ancient barbaric curse, as Montague R. James tells it in his weird story, Casting the Runes. My name is Edward Dunning. I'm a scientist. I'm used to dealing with facts, not fairy tales. I'm regarded as Britain's leading authority on medieval life. And as such, I've studied much of the ancient fears and barbaric superstitions of those times. I should have been the first to scoff at any suggestion that the ancient powers of evil, the black magic of Teutonic days, could be believed and practiced in the 20th century. A few weeks ago, I should have laughed had you told me that a curse... A hex could kill a man. Today, I cannot laugh. It has happened to a man I know of. And now, it's happening to me. My first presentment of danger came on that day a few weeks ago when I dropped in to see Alfred Smythe, secretary of the National Science Association, and found him in a state of irritation. Lost it all, Dunning. I almost wish you hadn't been so brutally honest in your report on that Carswell paper. Why? What's the trouble? Oh, he's such a frightful fellow. He's raising a terrible row. You mean Carswell himself? Yes, it's bad enough a vicious charlatan like that calling himself a scientist. But now he's taking all his vindictiveness out on me. <laughs> Sorry, old chap. It's really me he'd like to get at. As a matter of fact, that's just what his last letter was about. He wants to know what supposed authority wrote the report rejecting his paper. You didn't give him my name. Heavens, no. 
As a matter of fact, Dunning, I haven't and I won't, and for a very special reason. Call it silly, call it crazy, call it what you will. I have an uncanny feeling about that man Carswell. Hmm? Why? Do you know anything about him? Nothing. I've never seen him. I only know that he wrote a paper called The Truth of Alchemy. It was hopeless. Precisely. And why was it hopeless? Well, besides being abominably written, it was supposed to prove that alchemy, black magic, and such rot actually exists. I think the man really believes it. Undoubtedly he does, and that's what I mean. He lives in an isolated old house in Warwickshire. He's rarely seen elsewhere, and in his whole career he's written only two things. This paper and a history of witchcraft published ten years ago. Yes, of course. I remember now. So that's the man. Yes, hmm? and that book was even worse than this paper. The man has a warped mind. I'm sure he's tried every unhealthy experiment in alchemy, witchcraft, and black magic. There's no telling to what lengths of vindictiveness a man like that might go. Well, it does sound a bit queer, but... It's not queer, Dunning. Evil. Oh, come. Man has a right to believe what he likes. He has a right to be angry with me. Here, I've glibly scoffed at the man's life's work. Well, perhaps I'm being overly suspicious and imaginative, but I think there's more than anger involved here, Edward. Mm -hmm. This may sound fantastic to you, but, well... John Harrington wrote the report condemning that witchcraft book of Carswell's ten years ago. Three months later, Harrington was dead. Hmm. But, Alfred, what's the connection? Harrington died under very peculiar circumstances. He was walking home alone late one night, and suddenly he screamed, broke into a run, lost his hat and stick, and climbed up a tree. A dead branch gave way. He fell and broke his neck. No one's ever been able to explain why it happened. <laughs> Come now, Alfred. Jolly, you're not suggesting... Well, I don't this... know what I'm suggesting. I only know that after he reviewed Carswell's book, John Harrington didn't have a moment's peace. Now you've written an unfavorable review of his, this paper. If I were you, I should keep that fact well hidden. <laughs> oh, Alfred. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yes. I laughed at Alfred Smythe's fears. How could I have known then that I was to feel the same terror, the same agonized fear which gripped the heart of John Harrington as he crouched, panting, on the branch of a tree with another moment or two of life, while beneath him the thing came closer and closer. I'd almost forgotten the incident when, a few nights later, I was riding home on a late train. I was half-drowsing in my seat, barely keeping awake by looking idly at the car card advertisements. The man directly opposite me must have been doing the same, because suddenly I heard him say, Here now, what can that one be advertising? I followed his eyes to the window beside my head. What I saw brought me bolt upright in my seat. In memory of John Addington... Died September 18th, 1937, by falling from a tree. Three months were allowed. Blimey, what do you say that means, sir? Well, I... I don't know. But I did know. Smythe had been right. The affair with Carswell was not over, but only begun. I asked the conductor about the card, but he was as puzzled as I was. He had never seen it before. The card must have been put there expressly for me. That meant that Carswell knew it was I who had reviewed his paper. How had he found out? I got the answer the next day. 
I was in the select manuscript department of the British Museum doing some research in the quiet, almost deserted room. I'd been working steadily for an hour, oblivious to my surroundings, when suddenly, just at my shoulder, I heard a voice. Edward Dunning, you are allowed three months. I swung around in my seat. There was no one within 20 feet of me. I sat for a moment, shaken, and then I stooped to pick up the papers I had brushed to the floor. I straightened up to find a stout, elderly gentleman standing in front of me. Excuse me, sir. Uh, yes? May I give you this paper? I think it should be yours. Oh, yes, so it is. I thought I had them all. This one seemed to have slid across the floor. Thank you very much. Not at all, sir. Good afternoon. He walked slowly away and out of the door. A kindly, stout old gentleman. But there was something about him that made me feel strange. I went over to the attendant. Uh, yes, Mr. Dunning? Uh, did you notice that gentleman I was just speaking to? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, can you tell me his name? Why, that's Mr. Carswell. As a matter of fact, he was asking about you only the other day. Asking about me? Well, he asked who were the great authorities on medieval science. Of course, I told him you were the only one in the country. Oh, I see. Uh, would you like to meet him, Mr. Dunning? I'll see if I uh, can... Oh, uh, no. No, thank you. It was as simple as that. Now Carswell knew. What would be his next move? What was I to expect? I reached home at dusk. And trouble stood on my doorstep in the long face and stooped form of my family doctor. I've had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning. I've had to send both your servants to hospital. But what happened? Uh, something like terminal poisoning, I should think. It's nothing serious. Well, what could have caused it? Well, that's the rather odd thing. They tell me they bought some shellfish from a hawker and had it for lunch. I've made inquiries, but I can't find that a hawker called at any other house on this street. Was this the next move? If so, it had succeeded. I was alone in the house, and my nervousness increased as darkness closed in and the hours advanced toward midnight. I went to bed, but almost immediately I thought I heard something my study door opening downstairs. I went out and leaned over the banister. There was nothing moving, nothing visible. There was only a sudden, surprising gust of warm air playing about my legs. I went back into my room and locked the door. Suddenly, the lights went out. No doubt it was only a blown fuse, but the chills were playing up and down my spine. I went over to the bed and reached for my watch under the pillow. I suppose I wanted to find out the time, I don't know why. But fumbling on the pillow, my hand touched something far different from a watch. It was like a mouth with sharp teeth and hair around it, not human at all. I fled from my bedroom and spent a long and miserable night locked in a spare room, my ear to the door. But nothing came. I was not disturbed again. In the morning, I searched the house and found nothing unusual. But the mark of fear must have been stamped on my face, for Smythe noticed it next day. Darling, you look as if you hadn't slept for weeks. 
Is anything wrong? I... I don't know, Alfred. I... Uh, yes, there is. Carswell knows. How? They told him at the museum. Of course, we should have thought of that. Has anything happened yet? I don't know. It's too fantastic. It's probably my mind, hypnotic suggestion or something, but... Like that man Harrington, I have three months left. Edward! Must have been hearing things. I'm all on edge. I don't, I don't know what to think. John Harrington had a brother, Henry. Perhaps I'd better get you in touch with him. He might know more about this man, Carswell. Yes, yes, do it. And quickly. Three months is not a lot of time. It was arranged. That night, I found myself walking down the dark street that led from the railway station to the Harrington home. It must have been along this same street that John Harrington had walked that last night, where he had broke and run. It must have been one of these trees bordering the lonely road in which he had spent his last horrible moments. The way was dark, and there was no living soul in sight. And suddenly, complete terror gripped me. Somehow I knew that I was being followed. At first I only felt it, and then I heard it. I walked steadily on for a moment, my stomach like ice. It was getting louder, coming closer. Unconsciously, my step quickened. I could barely control myself. I wanted to scream and run. The thing came closer and closer. I confess, I broke and ran, ran madly for my life. I was at a little side street. I turned down the doubling back toward the railway station. I thought I would never make it. But finally, bright lights loomed before my eyes, and I think that I never have been so grateful for human companionship. There's no need to run, sir. The 840 won't be along for another five minutes. I felt very foolish. I couldn't bring myself to walk back down that street to Harrington's. I could only take the train home furtively and call Harrington next morning to beg his forgiveness. He seemed very understanding and asked no questions. Undoubtedly, Smythe had told him something about me. At any rate, he agreed to visit me at a place two nights later. And when he arrived and was made welcome, he began to talk about his brother. Yes, Mr. Dunning. John was in a very bad state for weeks before the accident, uh, if that's what it was. The principal thing seemed to be the notion that he was being followed. It became an obsession. Yes, I know. I don't think his death was an accident. Then perhaps you can explain it? No. But I have one clue. Your brother reviewed a book very severely not long before he died. Just lately, I happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book. And his name, of course, is Carswell. That's right. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that does it. Before he died, John was beginning to feel, much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. Why? Well, it doesn't make sense. None of this does, but tell me. My brother liked music. He went to all the concerts in town, and he made a hobby of collecting the programs. One night, about three months before his death, he brought one home and showed it to me. I nearly missed this one, he said. It seems he'd lost his and was hunting for it under his seat when a neighbor, a rather stout elderly gentleman, offered to give John his. The kind gentleman was Mr. Coswell. Undoubtedly. I started to leave through the program and noticed on the second page some rather curious letters carefully written there in black and red ink. Neither of us could make much of it, except that the letters seemed to be runic. 
Runes. Runes, of course. Well, John thought it might be important and debated whether he shouldn't try to return the program to the stout gentleman. But just then the door blew open and a gust of air, of strangely warm air, blew into the room. In a flash, it took the program and blew it straight into the fire. Yes, your brother was right. He should have returned it. Well, there was nothing to be done then. No, perhaps not. But do you know what runic letters mean? Well, they're old pre-Druid script, I believe. The kind of writing the barbaric tribes used long before the Romans invaded Britain. Yes, that's right. Casting the runes, they used to call it in the old days. Casting the runes. Uh, what do you mean? Well, it was a curse, a, a hex. In primitive England, people thought by casting the runes, that is, handing a person a piece of paper with certain runic letters on it, that uh, you could put that person out of the way, destroy him. It's an old superstition. And the only way to lift the curse was to return the paper to the one who gave it to you, to give it back without his knowing it. I don't believe that kind of nonsense. <laughs> Neither do I. Then what was it that killed John? I don't know. Perhaps his fear of the runes, perhaps brooding about it, becoming neurotic, thinking he saw things and heard things and touched things that weren't there. Perhaps his own mind drove him to death. And what's the difference once you're dead? No difference at all. Casting the runes. Oh, it's rubbish. Yes, of course, but... Good heavens. What is it? I just remembered that day at the British Museum... He cast the runes on me. I went swiftly to the writing table, Harrington close behind me. My portfolio was there, full of the scribbled notes I'd been working on that day in the museum. And as I took it in my shaking hands and began leaping desperately through them, one strip of thin, light paper slipped and fluttered toward the open window with uncanny quickness. But Harrington was even quicker and slammed the window shut just in time. Got it? Oh, thank heavens. If it were lost or destroyed, like your brother's... Then you wouldn't be able to return it to Mr. Carswell. Yes. Look at it. It's identical with the one John got. I looked at the flimsy paper. The characters, carefully traced in red and black, were runes, all right. That ancient language used by the Aborigines of prehistoric Britain. I couldn't decipher them. But as Harrington and I stood looking into each other's eyes... Each of us could read the other's thoughts. Science or not, 20th century or not, this sheet of fool's cap spells death for its possessor. It spells death for you. It must be returned. Yes, I know. It must go back in such a way that it doesn't... that he doesn't know he's received it. That means we can't simply mail it. No, we can't. We must do it personally. That will take doing. Well, he knows you by sight, doesn't he? Yes. You must shave your beard... It will alter your appearance. He might strike any time. I have three months. That's what the warning said. We've got to make good on this, Dunning. I've searched ten years for my brother's murderer, and now he must not escape. I dare not go near Carswell, so Harrington volunteered to keep a watch on him to let me know when our chance came to return the runes, if it was ever to come. It was only a night or two after Harrington was there that I arrived home and found the calendar had come in the mail. When I examined it, I found everything after November 19th had been torn out 
The next night, I had another envelope of the mail. This time it was a woodcut, an illustration torn out of a book, showing a dark, moonlit road and a man walking on it. And right behind him came a huge, dark shape, some awful demon creature. Under it were written some lines from the ancient mariner. And as I sat alone and read them aloud, I felt that now familiar gust of warm air playing about my legs. The man walks on and turns no more his head because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. Now I knew the face of my terror and it was with me always. Walking down the dark street at night, I heard its footsteps behind me. In my lonely house at midnight, it roamed the halls. Like the ancient mariner and John Harrington, I never turned to look. I couldn't. My nerves were going, and I could do nothing but wait. The days, the weeks slipped by, and still Harrington had no plan. I checked off the days on the calendar Carswell had sent. Now there were eight days remaining, then six, then three, two, one. It was the evening of the 18th. My last day on earth was to begin at midnight. I was sitting alone in my living room, bathed in perspiration, fighting to keep my nerves in check. Suddenly I felt that warm gust of air. I listened. There were soft footsteps. A shadow seemed to cross the hall door. And then the footsteps blended into a loud bang. No, no, not yet. I've still got one day more. Not yet. Stand It's me. Oh. Oh, thank heaven. Harry. What's the matter, man? What is it? It was you. You were knocking on the door. Your footsteps. Yes, of course. Oh. Thank him. I, I thought I... I look, man, you've got to pull yourself together. It's tonight we have our chance. What chance? Carswell leaves Victoria Station by boat train tonight at 10. I'll get on with him there. You take the car I brought and drive to Croydon. Get on the train there and be sure to bring the paper. Yes. Yes, I have it. You've shaved already. Good. Everything depends on his not recognizing you. This Harrington. This, suppose he changes his mind. Suppose he doesn't take that trip. My time runs out tomorrow. He'll be there, and you'll do it. You'll do it well. You've got to. I stood on the platform at Croydon in my mind in a daze. I thought the train would never come, but it did. I saw Harrington at the window. He stared coolly at me. Of course, there was to be no sign of recognition. I entered the coach and slowly made my way down the aisle to the compartment where Harrington sat. Opposite him, staring full into my face, was Carswell. He looked up as I sat down. His eyes were heavy-lidded, his face bland. It was impossible to tell whether he knew. The train started. The next stop was Dover at the end of the line. My last chance. It was time to cast the rules. It was a strange ride. Carswell and I seated face to face, staring into each other's eyes. 
Harrington off to the side, pulling at his face with twitching fingers. If I could have only had a few whispered moments with him to plan our strategy, but that was impossible. The moments dragged tortuously, no one moved. Then suddenly Carswell leaned forward. I beg your pardon, sir. Haven't we met? Uh, met? Well, I don't think so, sir. Not unless you're in the plumbing business. Plumbing? No. Hardly. I hadn't planned it that way. The words, the accent, just seemed to come by themselves. And Carswell sat back, an enigmatic expression on his face. I wished desperately to know what he was thinking. Then suddenly he got up and went out into the corridor. Was this my chance? I was about to slip over to his bags to see if there were a way of, to secrete the rooms within them. When I caught Harrington's eye and read a warning in them. Carswell from the corridor was watching, waiting to see if we recognized each other. I muttered a prayer of thanks. I hadn't moved. Carswell came back and took his seat. As he did so, wild, exultant hope surged up in my throat, for something slipped off his seat and dropped noiselessly to the floor. It was his ticket case, and he didn't see it. It was a small cardboard ticket case with a pocket on the cover. If I could just get to it and slip that tiny piece of paper into that pocket. For 15 agonizing minutes, I sat there and stared at it. If only Carswell would go out. But he sat stolidly staring straight ahead. We were coming into the outskirts of Dover, the train slowing down. Suddenly, Harrington stood up, reached up to the rack above Carswell to get his coat and bag. I stared at him blankly for a moment, surprised by his sudden clumsiness. And then I realized what he was up to. The bag, the coat, a briefcase all came tumbling down upon Carswell. What the devil? Oh, I say, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. You clumsy fool, you might have injured me. What were you trying to do? Well, it was my only chance. Carswell stood facing anyway? Harrington. I, I reached down, got the ticket case, and with trembling fingers slid the paper into the pocket. He turned sharply to me and I extended the case toward him. Uh, excuse me, sir. Is this yours? Yes, it's my ticket case. Where'd you find it? Here on the floor. Must have dropped off when... Yes. I'm much obliged to you, sir. Not at all. Not at all. He looked at me fiercely, his rage at Harrington still twisting his face into a devil's mask. Then he glanced briefly into the ticket case and put it into his pocket. On the railway pier at Dover, Harrington and I followed a few steps behind Carswell. I felt like I might faint. Carswell went straight to the gangway of the boat, and there the purser Excuse stopped him. Me, sir, does your friend have a ticket? My friend? What the devil do you mean? I'm traveling alone. Well, that's funny. I could have sworn there was another gentleman right there beside you, walking just at your elbow. Well, there isn't. And I suggest you see an oculist. Oh, I, I didn't see. I just felt... Sorry, sir. It must have been your rugs. My mistake. Come on, Dunning. Our job's done. I didn't sleep that night. I lay awake and listened. But there were no footsteps, no warm gusts of air, nothing to disturb me. All day I felt remarkably free, although this was to have been my last day on Earth. But only just now, when Harrington came in, could I really relax. Well, Dunning, have you seen the afternoon paper yet? I know. Not yet. Well, here. Look at it. On the second page. There. Abbeville, France. An English traveler 
examining the front of St. Wolfram's Cathedral today, was struck on the head and killed instantly by a stone falling from the scaffolding. A note of mystery was added by the fact that although the cathedral was undergoing repairs, no workman was on the scaffolding at the time of the accident. The traveller was identified by papers found on him as a Mr. Carswell of Warwickshire. Uh, of course, it could have been an accident. Yes. Yes, it could have been. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and tonight brought you Casting the Runes by Montague R. James, adapted for radio by Irving Ravitch and John Dunkel, with John McIntyre as Edward Dunning, Jan Wolfe as Harrington, and Bill Conrad as Coswell. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Next week... You are trapped in a hidden valley, high in the Andes walled in by sheer rock precipices and surrounding you, closing in on you, is a band of blind men who want your eyes. Next week, we escape with H.G. Wells' gripping story, The Country of the Blind. Good night, then, until this same time next week when we again offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Watch out for strangers picking things up for you. You can never be sure that it's not somebody casting the runes. That was Escape from November 19th, 1947. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater did a version of it in 1974. That would have been an hour-long version. And then several years later, the BBC did a loose adaptation of Casting the Runes. And we're going to make it three in a row for the otherworldly with Dark Fantasy. Next, here on Skywave Audio Theater. The anthology series Dark Fantasy had its debut on November 14, 1941, and seven months later, it was history. A short-lived series, but a good one. Scott Bishop, who had a longer run in writing for The Mysterious Traveler, did the writing for The Dark Fantasy, and the series originated from station WKY in Oklahoma City and aired on Friday nights on NBC stations. It quickly became popular, but for whatever reason, it did end after just 31 episodes. This is the debut episode, a story of crime and revenge. The Man Who Came Back. Dark Fantasy from November 14, 1941. I 
I'm the man who came back. Stay right there in that doorway and don't let nobody in or out. Right, Captain. All right, now. All right, you heard him. Oh, but we had nothing to do with this. Okay, sister. If you didn't, you ain't got nothing to be scared of. Hey, you. Where do you think you're going? I thought I might get a little air, if you don't mind. Well, I do mind. Now, back in the house with you. What's the big idea of you wearing that mask? As you might have observed, my friend... This is a masquerade party. Oh, is it now? Well, according to Emily Post, it's masks off at midnight. And we got this call to come out here just as the clock in Washington Circle was striking the hour. The call was placed by a most hysterical woman. And there is nothing you can do for the man in there, I assure you. Stop changing the subject. What I want to know is, why ain't you unmasked? Like the other. I prefer, sir, to wear my mask. Take it off, Don Juan. I want to look at your mug. It might be better, my friend, if you didn't see my mug. Now look here, Zorro. Perhaps while we are waiting, I might tell you a story. Yeah? What is this? Bedtime at Grandma's? The only story I'm interested in is... What happened here tonight? Exactly. Eh? I said exactly. Perhaps I can tell you the story. All right, then, my fine, mysterious friend. Give. Well, you see, it's quite a long story. It really all began three... Yes, at least three years ago. I remember that evening quite well. I let myself into Granger's apartment. It was a golden key I used. A bright golden key. And there was no one there when I arrived. So I closed the door and waited. Grange, imagine seeing me here. Huh? Blake. Oh, I say, you startled me. Did I now? I dare say, had I been someone else, you wouldn't have been at all startled. Uh, incidentally, old man, how did you get in here? I suppose it would be quite facetious of me to say that I came in the same way you did. Oh, I say, a, a new piano. Do you mind? Uh, uh, no, not at all. Go right ahead. Help yourself. Uh, have a drink? No, thanks. You'd better have one, though. Hmm? Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, I say, Blake, what's that you're playing? You've heard it before, Grange. Have I? I don't recall. You have a short memory. I usually remember pretty well. Well, when you choose to, you do, yes. What do you mean by that? 
My wife has played that tune for you every night this week and last and the week before that. You see, I happen to know. Oh. I see. Well, I'm glad you haven't the audacity to deny it. No. No, I don't deny it. Your wife has been here. Often. As often as she possibly could. But I assure you, she came of her own desire. And as a result of your oily persuasion... I might agree, Blake, that she is easily persuaded. And, of course, my uh, curiosity prompts me to ask how you finally learned the truth. I accidentally found the key to your apartment here. It was in Sylvia's purse. A golden key. With your initials engraved on one side, hers on the other. Why, I thought that a rather handsome touch. Don't you agree? I've brought the key back to you. <laughs> how gallant of you, old fellow. I'm serious. Sylvia will never come here again. Are you positive of that? Quite. For I shall ask her not to. You seem to believe she'll obey you. She will. And I ask you now, Grange, as a gentleman, kindly refrain from inviting her here again. In uh, other words, hands off. Is that it? Uh, I'm glad I make myself quite plain. Why, you fool. You dull, stupid fool. What right have you to demand anything of Sylvia? Do you think for a moment, night after night, twiddling her thumbs while you're away from home? I admit I've been busy this past year, but another six months... Ah, you've no one to blame for Sylvia's being here but yourself. Here she's found what you've denied her, Blake. And I doubt very much if she'll give it up. Why, you swine, if you think for a moment... Oh. I forgot you carried a gun. But if you'd care to put it away... (laughs) Skip the heroics, Blake. You know, I think I've suddenly thought of a solution to all this. The only solution is for you to leave Sylvia alone. Oh, no. No, you're quite mistaken. This is the solution. Here in my hand. Indeed, I rather like the idea. Besides, with you out of the way, Sylvia need have no more qualms. Why, you low yellow rat. That's it, Blake. Come closer. Threaten me. Make me do it. Make me do it, Blake. If you think killing me is a way out, Grange, you're very badly mistaken. It's the only way out. If you kill me, Grange, I'll come back and avenge myself. One shot and that'd be all. I can prove self-defense. Sylvia will help. She'll swear you came here and tried to kill me. I'll come back, Grange. Just one shot directly between the eyes. I'll haunt you, Grange, because by God in heaven, I'll come back. It's a perfect scheme, yes. I like it. I'll pierce the veil, Grange, because (laughs) I'll come back if I have to fight all the demons of hell to do it. (laughs) Prepare, Blake. This is a chance of a lifetime. It's the way out. Yes, it's the way out, Grange. Read the headline news about the killing. It's all here in the... 
It is the judgment of this court that the defendant, Keith Grange, did shoot and kill the deceased Philip Blake on the night of April 16th, and that in so doing, he acted in a line of self-defense. The court therefore decrees that Keith Grange shall not be held to account for this unfortunate incident. my dear? I suppose there's nothing to worry about now. Not the slightest thing. I told you from the very beginning, Sylvia, that I acted rightly in doing what I did. Oh, I still can't resign myself to it. But you must. It's all over. Philip is dead. Now we can be together as much as we please. Keith, suppose you and I should have a misunderstanding. Suppose I should become angry sometime. So angry, I... I might tell the truth to the authorities. Uh, that, my dear, would be most unfortunate. But it's a possibility, and by no means should we overlook possibilities. And so allow me to remind you, Sylvia, my dear girl, that your hiding the true facts of the matter of the coroner's investigation automatically makes you an accomplice. Oh, I see. But why are we talking like this, darling? We'll both feel better after we've had a little rest. Oh, of course we will, dear. Kiss me goodnight, darling. I'm going home. I'll take you. Oh, no. No, I'd rather go alone tonight, if you don't mind. As you wish, my dear. Good night. Good night, darling. Sweet. Uh, will you call me in the morning? Yes, of course I will. Good night, then. Good night, darling. Pleasant dreams. That's strange. Very strange. Just a moment ago, there were only Sylvia and I here. Now she's gone. Yet I feel that I'm not alone. You're not alone, Grange. What? What was that? I thought I heard a voice. It was my voice. Who, who are you? Where are you? I told you I'd come back. No. No, it's just my imagination. Is it your imagination, Grange? Yes. Yes, of course. I warned you. I warned you. Remember? Come out. Come out in the open. Come out, I say. Do you hear me? Come out. Your gun is useless against me now, Grange. What do you want? Tell me, what do you want? Oh, not now. The time isn't right. Now, but I'll be back. Watch for me and wait. Watch and wait, for I'll come back, Rain. I'll come back. No. No, I'm sure of it. It was no one. No one at all. I just imagined it, that's all. Yes, just my imagination.
Sylvia, dear, you look so tired. Here, perhaps this will wake you up. Present for you. A present? Yes. Something I picked up today. I thought you'd like it. How sweet of you, darling. Uh, I think I can guess just by looking at the box. It's, um, it's a ring. Oh, aren't you clever? <laughs> Go ahead, open it. All right, darling, but don't hurry me. Oh. Miss Sylvia, that isn't the ring I bought for you. Keith, look at this ring. The initials. P.B. Keith, this... This is his ring. Sylvia, what are you saying? It's his ring. I gave it to him. But Sylvia... Keith, I swear to you, Philip Blake was buried with that ring on his finger. Coming around to the other side, please, mister. That door's busted, and you can't get it open. Oh, very well. Sorry to ask that of you, but they ain't had time to get the other door fixed. Where to, friend? Uh, oh, uh, uh, Huntington Arms Hotel, please. Right. Excellent. Huh? That's where I'm going. Oh. Oh, you startled me. I didn't know there was anyone in this cab. It's so dark tonight. Yes. Isn't it? I see. I don't seem to feel anyone in the seat here beside me. Strange. You certainly bumped me hard enough when you crawled in here. Bumped you? Oh, I beg your pardon, sir, but I... Never mind, Grange. Never mind. You know me? I'm surprised that you don't know me. Why, yes. Your voice sounds familiar. Good Lord. Philip Blake. Do you mind riding with me? I... Blake. You're supposed to be dead. You're supposed to be buried. I am dead, Grange. I am buried. Cabby! Cabby, stop this cab! Right, sir. Now, let me out of here. Let me out. What's the matter, Governor? Hey, you hadn't ought to jump out of a moving car like that. What in the name of heaven is in the back of that cab? Why, nothing, Governor. Here, see? I'll turn on the light. There. See? But there was somebody in there with me. Oh, now, mister, they couldn't have been. Look for yourself. The seat's empty there. You just jumped out on this side of the cab. The other door won't open. <laughs> no, brother, there wasn't nobody in that seat with you. Must have been your imagination. Hello? Hello, darling. Dear, this is Sylvia. I just wanted to remind you about the masquerade ball at Keith's new home tonight. You'll be there? Fine. Now remember, masks and costumes for everybody. All right, dear. Bye. 
Now, be sure to come in costume, won't you, Dorothy? Yes. And heavily masked, my dear. Yes, at Keith's new place. Oh, darling, wait till you see the place. It's really a mansion. <laughs> Honestly, it's I believe. Sylvia, darling. <laughs> so you've penetrated my disguise. Silly. I heard you order it from the costumers yesterday. <laughs> darling, the music will start soon. It's the first dance hours. Sylvia, my dear, every dance is ours tonight. <laughs> Are you happy I bought this place? Oh, it's lovely. Absolutely lovely, Keith. Darling, what's the matter? That man in black. I've been watching him all evening. He's been watching me. Do you know who he is? No. He just stands and stares at me. Everywhere I go, he's always just a short distance away. Look, Keith. He's going into your study. Well, he hasn't any business in there. That's strange. I locked that door this evening so the guest wouldn't go into your study and disturb things. Well, he just walked right in. And dear, I'll go see who he is and what he wants. You mingle with the guests and I'll join you later. Very well, dear. But don't be long. I'll be waiting for you. All right, Sylvia. Yeah. It's odd. This door is locked. Dark. Piano. No, confound it. Where's the light switch? There. It can't be. That piano. Someone's playing and... Yet there's no one seated there. The keys. Moving. Up and down. Playing the music. But there are no hands on them. That melody. It's the melody he played the night I killed him. He's playing it now. And yet he's not there. I'm here, Grange. I'm here. Play. Look closer, Grange. Here I am. You see? Yes. I see you now. I brought you a little gift for your masquerade party. What? You'll find it lying on your desk. Turn around and see for yourself. That's right. There. You see? A, a gun. It's the one you killed me with. Don't you recognize it? Where did you get that gun? I found it, Grange. And I've brought it back to you. I put one shell in its chamber... Just one, Grange. But that is enough. What are you trying to... Gone. He's gone. Lord, am I mad? Was I dreaming? No. 
the gun is here. It is my gun. One cartridge, he said. Only one. One cartridge. Yes. Yes, it's the only way left. He knew it was the only way. Now he's left me to take it. All right, Blake. You can have your revenge. You can have it. And you are right. It is the only way. Shot himself, eh? The evidence in there will indicate that he did, yes. Say, that's quite a yarn you spun, Zorro. It is nothing but the truth. Come on now, come on, my friend. Let's take off your mask and have a look at you. One moment. Keith Grange shot Philip Blake squarely between the eyes. Yeah? So what? That doesn't make a very pretty sight. Well, I don't see what that's got to do with... Uh, here comes the captain. Here, take that mask off you. Captain Sullivan, come here a minute, will you? Yes, Casey, what is it? Well, there's a mug here that won't take off his mask. He's been spinning me the most fantastic yarn I ever heard in all my... Uh, 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 where'd he go? Huh? Where'd who go? Say, did you let somebody get out of this house, Casey? No, 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 Sir Cap. No, I didn't. But he was he was standing here just a minute ago. He wouldn't take off his mask. He told me the darndest story about a murdered man coming back from the grave. Casey, <laughs> have you been near the punch bowl? Well, there's no one here now. Wait a minute. What's this stain here on the floor? Blood. A little pool of it. There on the floor. Right in the exact spot where the man in black was standing. Came Back, an original tale of dark fantasy by Scott Bishop. Ben Morris was Keith Grange. Eleanor Naylor Corrin was Herda Sylvia. Fred Wayne took the part of Casey. Muir Height was Captain Sullivan. Murillo Schofield, the cab driver. And Eugene Francis was the man who came back. Ladies and gentlemen, every Friday night at this time, the National, Broadcast, the National Broadcasting Company will bring you dark fantasy, tales of the weird, Adventures of the Supernatural, created for you by Scott Bishop. 
Listen one week from tonight for the breathtaking story of the tombs of ancient China, the soul of Shanghai Wan. This is the National Broadcasting Company. That was a calm and friendly couple of conspirators. The man who came back worked kind of like the shadow, breaking in on the evildoer as a vengeful voice. That was the debut episode of Dark Fantasy. It came from November 14, 1941. And that piano piece, by the way, was the Waltz in A-flat by Johannes Brahms. It's a wrap for this week. I'm Norman Gilliland, and I'll be back next week with more Theater of the Mind. Join me then if you can for Skywave Audio Theater. <laughs>